fuck you. That's my name. <laughs> This is unique in Quentin Tarantino's filmography in that it is the only movie he's done that doesn't end in a massacre. Every single story in it, there there are people killed, but every story in this movie ends with someone being saved. The story of Vincent Vega and Mia Wallace ends with Vincent saving Mia's life. The story of the gold watch ends with Butch saving Marcellus's life. And the story of the Bonnie situation ends with Jules saving Pumpkin and Honey Bunny's life. So it's the most redemptive of Quentin Tarantino's entire filmography. That's as good a place as any to start. This is Sharks Across Hollywood. I was going to transition into talking about how shitty everybody is in this movie by bringing up the fact that I watched that Pistols show on uh, on Hulu. The, the FX show about the Sex Pistols. And how much I, I developed a better appreciation for their, for their music. And I hate them even more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they weren't heroes. They were uh, sort of the antithesis, if anything. Oh, my God. Like, everybody around them is just, like, the worst people. I hate Sid Vicious. I hate fucking... I hate Johnny Rotten. Like, they made him sympathetic and kind of cool in the show. And I'm like, he was... I don't know if he was ever like that, especially not now. You were the one talking about, like, (laughs) anti-fascism and stuff with God Save the Queen and shit. Now you're backing a fascist just because you think you're funny just because you think it's punk rock to go against people like that it is to a degree and it's not like he has any investment in it he's not american i know right i'm just like shut the fuck up it's like we can all sit back and laugh about boris johnson possibly making a comeback here because it doesn't fucking affect us directly they're all garbage they all suck that song bodies (laughs) is one of the coolest fucking punk songs i've ever heard in my life though that song is is fucking awesome I never heard it before. I love that song. And before I watched the show, I never heard it, and it's fucking great. And now I'm going to the band and being like, guys, we need to fucking play that song. We need to cover that song. And you know what we do? If we play it live, we should wear diapers. Because <laughs> it's about, oh man, I that, it's about an that's abortion. really surprises me. Because never mind the bollocks that that album is like punk 101. That was that was my introduction to punk, like real punk. Like I'd listened to the only thing I'd listened to before that that could be classified as even punk adjacent is a bunch of christian punk bands you know so like my first introduction to to anything that could be classified as real punk was <laughs> yeah never mind the bollocks man and bodies is easily my favorite song on that album it's so cool and so gross and it's just it, it's such a good song it's really cool it makes me it's happy. just so completely unapologetic it's just a it's just a big fucking middle finger. I love that song. They come up with a story in the show about how we wrote that song. And I'm like, God, is any of this true? Because if so, that's really fucked up. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? It's and it's not like it's not like Johnny Rotten's ever going to confirm or or, you know, reliably confirm everything. He's still pissed off about Alex Cox's portrayal of him when Alex Cox flat out told him <laughs> he was like, no, we're going completely fictional with this one. No, we're not. He's an asshole. Part of the show does put part of Sid and Nancy, the movie, into context for me because I was very confused because I don't think they ever explain what the fuck is happening unless they do and I just miss it. 
that part where Sid is singing that song on stage. My way? Yeah, I had no idea. I'm like, what is he doing? Is this a dream? What the fuck is going on? And I don't think they ever addressed the fact that it's a movie they made in that movie. I think they kind of treat it as like a dream sequence. It's one of those things that I think if you know the Sex Pistols history and stuff, you're supposed to just kind of know what it is. But if you don't, it has this weird dreamlike quality. Alex Cox is very comfortable with doing stuff like that, just putting these sequences in and expecting you to pick up on it. Well, it only took me like 10 years since the first time I watched the movie to fucking figure out what the hell was going on there. <laughs> now I get it, though. And I'm like, OK, that that makes sense. I get it. I get it now. I also kind of want to watch anyway, that crappy movie. We're not talking about the Sex Pistols. We're talking about Pulp Fiction. You know, I brought up the Sex Pistols to bring up the fact that they're assholes and nobody in this movie are good people. Aside from one person, there's one person who I could consider like maybe a decent human being, but we'll get to that person. Who, Fabienne? Yeah. Yeah, I was watching it this time kind of going, yeah, I mean, she really has no idea what she's in for with Butch. Those, <laughs> All those knocks to the heads are going to, you know, it's like, it's like he's holding himself back right now. But uh, give it a few years and those knocks to his head are going to turn into knocks to her head. I don't want to know it. If he doesn't straight up murder her, he's going to at least beat her to a pulp. Hey, pulp. get it. <laughs> I use the title. Um, I can't remember what the definition was at the beginning of the movie, but I looked it up real quick. And the first definition, which just kind of made me laugh, is a soft, wet, shapeless, massive material. Which yes. is honestly how I remembered this movie being. Because I thought <laughs> I had that same thought. I thought that it was going to be when I went back to rewatch it, like all the stories kind of like intercut in between each other. And it doesn't do that. It like sandwiches one story at, at the beginning and the end. But then it puts it just completes all these stories all all at once. It's like a series of short films. Well, I mean, it starts with the lead up to the end. Yeah. And then it cuts to the beginning of the end. It's the sandwich. Yeah, yeah, it does do that. But at least so it, like it, it, you can follow the shit. Like it's, it, yeah, once it gets into the first story, Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife, once that starts, then it's a series of stories that have like sort of a logical flow to them. I mean, they're, they're, they have moments where they're recursive, like, you know, uh, the gold watch starting with Butch as a child and then jumping to Butch as an adult. But everything makes sense. It, it, there is a logical flow of information. Tarantino referred to it as being like a novel. You know, if it were in novel form, nobody would question it. And that's true. And that's actually very fitting because the movie is based on old pulp magazines, which contain stories of this type. Lots of racial slurs and homophobic slurs and uh, violence and all that fun stuff. Well, I think the racial and homophobic stuff was just staying true to character because, I mean, L.A. in the 90s, like that is so accurate. <laughs> like, I remember I remember growing up in the 90s and I didn't grow up in L.A. And my understanding is in L.A. in the 90s, everything was like way more heightened than it was in the rest of the country. I grew up during my teenage years in rural Washington. And yeah, all that level of racism <laughs> and homophobia was perfectly socially acceptable you know it's fucked up no one's saying it's right but it's uh you know it's accurate to character and especially like quentin tarantino's little thing you know because like that the first time you watch that it's like whoa dude like how how is that character that confident to just drop n-bombs at a black assassin 
Like this dude is literally a professional killer and you're just throwing out the N word. Like it's no big deal. But then you see his wife is black and in the nineties, white guys married to black women. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's uh <laughs> story checks out. We open in that, in the, in the diner, they keep calling it a coffee shop. And I'm like, it's a fucking diner. Why do they keep calling it a coffee shop? A diner coffee shop. I think the terms were pretty much interchangeable at that time. Because at the time, Starbucks hadn't gone fully nationwide yet. And Starbucks was, was really the, the company that took... I mean, Starbucks were out there, but they weren't ubiquitous like they are now. And Starbucks sort of made coffee as, you know, you know like gourmet coffee, the mainstream. Before that, diners were often called coffee shops. You, you really have to watch this as a timepiece, as a, as a period piece, I should say. Cool. I'm going to go back to being seven years old when this shit would have been like the coolest thing watching it watching it at night when my parents are asleep i'm like yeah except i didn't see it until i was in high school this, so this traumatized a lot of young boys it, it's the kind of movie you think should have like lots of sex in it because everybody's swearing so you'd watch it for the whole two and a half hours going like boobs boobs i need boobs oh they ripped open uma thurman's shirt it doesn't matter yep. that she's fucking ODing right now it's cool oh but no boobs just just a <laughs> Just a corset thing. Creepy, creepy little adolescent boys. 100 million percent. Spending the night at my friend's house who had like HBO and Showtime and stuff. And we're just like flipping through the channels like, dude, there's a movie starting list. (laughs) And you know how it has all the warnings of like the stuff that's in the movie at the beginning. You know, it's like there's violence and it's like, oh, there's brief nudity, dude. Let's watch this movie. Yeah, turns out it's Bruce Willis's dong peeking into frame for a moment. <laughs> I was going to say, turns out you, you make it to it and it's just a guy showing his butt. But there's no nudity in this movie. Is there? Wait, no, no. There's yeah. Bruce, Bruce Willis. Willis's dick makes a oh, does it? blink and you miss it appearance. I mean, it is three frames tops, but it's in there. That explains why I had a boner during that scene. Yeah, yeah. You're not wrong. That would do it's, it. It's uh, that is boner inducing for sure. At the diner, this couple is talking about like Robin Banks and Robin liquor stores and how well, this isn't really Luke. It's not really lucrative or whatever, you know, and they're like, well, you the dudes like you had this good idea to steal people's wallets as they came into this liquor store the last time we were robbing it. And they seem all sweet and stuff. And she's like, I don't want to hurt anybody. And they're just they're just at work right now. The interesting thing with this scene for me, like like I'm really analyzing it this time and I've I've watched this movie, you know, 50 times, but like. When I sat down this time, I said, I'm really, I, I really want to, you know, just try and remember what it was like the first time I experienced this. Because my experience of Pulp Fiction was not like most other people's first experience of Pulp Fiction. The very first time I saw Pulp Fiction, I didn't actually watch the whole movie. I was flipping through channels and I stumbled upon the scene in the gold watch where Bruce Willis pulls up to the apartment and He's walking, you know, like he gets out of the car and he walks down that little alleyway to the apartment and it's all just like ambient sound, you know? So right off the bat, it was very unlike most movies I had seen up to that point. And so I got sucked in and man, I watched from that moment on, I watched the entire rest of the movie, but that's only like half of the movie that I actually watched. I had heard of Pulp Fiction up to that point, but having been raised super conservative christian i had heard of it in the context of this is the worst movie of the year stay away from it you want to go see the lion king that's a movie the lord would approve of so needless to say i sort of had this prejudice against it i saw it you know come up in the tv guide and i was like oh that's the worst movie of the year i don't want to go anywhere near that little did i know 
it instantly became my favorite movie. Like as soon, like he goes into the apartment and he he's kind of peeking all over the place, and then he sees the gun, picks it up. Vincent walks out. He blows him away with not a word spoken between them. I am so hooked at this point. And then he drives off. And the scene with Marcellus Wallace at the intersection, I was like, my God, what am I watching? And then it goes to the fucking pawn shop. I was not ready for that. I was 100% (laughs) not ready for what I saw there. And I was like, this movie is blowing my fucking mind. What even is this? It was recommended to me by my, my stepdad at the time. Really? Yeah. How old were you at this time? In high school. Okay. Yeah. That that's the time to watch it. He's like, you know, here's Pulp Fiction. Here's uh, from Dust Till Dawn. And yeah, it was it, he. He was that kind of guy. Every time that scene with Butch happens, where he flips out about the watch, I'm like, he was also that guy. And that that's, oh, that yeah. scene really bothers me. Like, yeah, a lot. No, that's it's it's upsettingly accurate that scene. How how some guys will just go from zero to 100 at the drop of a hat as soon as something is not going in a way that they deem acceptable just immediate way over the fucking top yeah you watch that scene and you just see fabian's future unfolding and ending very very badly uh yeah yeah um and then you know this movie starts to get racist like right off the bat too (laughs) a little bit yeah (laughs) like um, his name, I, I called him, uh, what did I call him? Ringo, because I can't remember his real name, but that's what Julian Jules. Is his name Jules? Do they say his real name, like his full name, or is it just Jules? It's just Jules. Okay. I kept on calling him Julian Julius Jules. I couldn't remember. Jules Winfield. Oh, okay. He even has a last name. Our man in Inglewood. Uh, he wants to, uh, well, Ringo, whatever the fuck his real name is, played by, good Lord, can't even remember that motherfucker's name right now. <laughs> Tim Roth. Tim Roth, thank you. Who had, uh, who had, well, he, I'm not going to say he made a name for himself in Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino's prior movie. He had made a name for himself in uh, Made in Britain, where he played a skinhead. But yeah, he's, he's, he's a, that dude, everybody in this movie is just a hell of an actor. Amanda Plummer, who plays uh, Honey Bunny, like, she is so fucking great. The more, the more I watch this movie, the more I realize, like, she might be, the best performance in the movie and you kind of forget about her because she's just barely in it. Yeah. She's basically there to make, to make Jules decision at the end of the movie easier. I think kind of, or make it make more sense. How so? Yeah. I I don't know. I don't even know what the fuck I'm talking about, man. (laughs) Well, yeah, if anything, I feel like it makes, it makes Jules decision more significant. But yeah, that, that, uh, that's because, a better word. But I think it's because I think it's because she would make it so much easier for him to just kill both of them like her over the top because she's she's adopting a persona. That's the thing that this scene tells us is is that's not who she is, but it is who she is also like you can see her ramp herself up. The more Tim Roth talks, you can see her getting more and more invested in what he's saying. And she's gearing herself up to be this character that she needs to be. She's she's going through a transformation. I don't know if you've read the screenplay for Pulp Fiction, but I actually read once I had seen that last half of Pulp Fiction, I went and because I was on the Internet at that time and I looked up the script to Pulp Fiction and read it obsessively, like to the point of memorization. 
and I hadn't seen the movie yet. I hadn't seen the entire movie start to finish. So I just had the script. And the way Tarantino describes her in the script is everything she does contradicts something else she did. And if you if you watch her performance with that in mind, it's like what a perfect interpretation <laughs> of that line she gives. She she's amazing in this. Well, yeah, and I'm thinking about it now. I'm like, they're like the amateur version of Vincent and Jules, who are both who are also a married couple, by the way. Like <laughs> the way they interact with each other and shit. <laughs> sort of. And, yeah. yeah. And, oh, it, well, and that was what I had initially intended to say when you kind of gave us a quick synopsis of what happened there. And then I was like, well, here's this. What I was trying to drive at and sort of got lost on the way was that the scene sucks you in because it starts off as very domestic and banal. Like what they're talking about, it just sounds like they're just talking about their day, you know, but you've clearly caught them in the middle of a conversation. So you have to pay attention to catch up to where they're at. And slowly you start to realize that what they're talking about is being criminals. They're talking about being professional criminals like professional amateur criminals you know like they make their living doing shitty bar or liquor store robberies liquor stores that they don't want to rob anymore because there's too many foreigners that don't speak english that's the racist part that i was trying to <laughs> it, it does immediately get super racist and now now I want to be clear i don't feel that this is necessarily tarantino endorsing racism as much as it is him writing characters who are racists yeah i don't i have a hard time like grasping whether or not Tarantino is is super racist or if he's just if he's just being the exploitation filmmaker who can get away with that kind of shit. Well, I think if you're going to write honest characters and you're writing characters in LA in the 90s, racism has to come up and it has to be like there have to be casually racist characters if you if they're going to be believable. Because casual racism, especially in LA in the 90s, but I mean everywhere in the 90s, but especially in L.A. in the 90s, was everywhere. Like That's if I wrote a dinner scene with me and my family in 1994, living in Washington State, you know, far from the Rodney King verdict and all that shit, if I wrote a dinner scene and that shit didn't get brought up, I'd be lying. I wouldn't be writing an honest dinner scene. Wow. And, uh. and some pretty casually racist opinions would get brought up by some people who would deny up and down that they were in any way racist uh well yeah i i had, I had both of those i had one house full of slightly liberal people that weren't like that at least not outwardly like they never said it but then i go to my dad's house and it's like white is the best color and look at all these not white people doing bad <laughs> things if people got to grow up without people in their life who were just casually like well you know i i I, I don't hate black people. I got nothing against black. Bad, black people are great. It's just that white people should marry white people and black <laughs> people should marry black people. And I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, with all these immigrants. I think it's great. You know, I just don't want them to take American jobs. And, uh, you know, I mean, they need to stay in their neighborhoods and stuff like that. You know, like this. I'm not racist, but here's some super racist shit, you know, type of people then you're very lucky if you didn't have to grow up with that. I did have to grow up with that. So this rings extremely true for me. I mean, you know what? They're just, they're just being their true selves. Honey Bunny and Ringo, not your parents. Yeah, I mean, my parents were being their true selves too. <laughs> uh, just, no, yeah. uh, maybe, were they? Because did they want to? Did they want to start throwing out racial slurs and tell those mm, to stay in their own neighborhood? Well, yeah. I mean, that is a question. I mean, there's definitely some deep seated racism 
you know, in all these boomers who wanted to be seen as progressive. You know who isn't, who who hopefully isn't racist, but probably should be just due to the fact that he looks the way he does? Danny DeVito. (laughs) (laughs) If you found out he was super racist, it wouldn't shock you. By all accounts, he's a super good dude, so I'm I'm good I know, that's exactly what I hear. He, um, who incidentally co-produced this film i know that's why i brought it up i wrote it down yeah <laughs> so that that's cool like he has that side job where he just produces all these fucking classic movies that kind of takes the taint off of you know it's like it's like you get that executive producers harvey weinstein and bob weinstein it's like Ugh, and then yeah. it's like flips to the next thing it's like you know co-executive producer danny devito you're like all right well that's something like that makes it a little better. Yeah, he produced a lot of weird shit. Like he did, he produced Reality Bites, and he produced and directed really? Matilda. What a varied career that man has had. You gotta love you some Danny DeVito. I don't know. Yeah, it, whatever dark shit he's got in his past, because you know he does. Just being a part of that generation of Hollywood. Well, yeah. I'm gonna be real sad when I find out. We get out of the diner scene when they start robbing. They start to. They decide like split second they're like we're gonna rob this place let's do it now all right fucking cool then she freaks well, out and <laughs> it's such a great ramp up that they do it starts with them just having this conversation and then it ramps and it ramps and you can see her ramping and ramping and he's kind of in the same place the whole time like he doesn't really change but she goes through this radical transformation from this she's so sweet to the server and then she she's so nasty when she jumps up out of that booth with that gun like just i believe it when she says any of you fucking pricks move and i'll execute every motherfucking last one of you i fucking believe her she's brilliant in this i'm telling you she's she's the unsung hero of this movie you can also 100 percent tell that neither of these people have ever pulled the trigger on those guns ever no no not <laughs> once that's why i love jules little thing he's the, like not to not to hurt your ego or anything but this is not the first time i've had a gun pointed at my face the terror in Tim, the, the hidden terror in Tim Roth's eyes when Jules decides to push back, you can just see like the, the internal struggle where he's like, Jesus Christ, what have I gotten into? It's like, I, I'm going <laughs> to have to, I'm going to have to use the gun this time, aren't I? And he so doesn't want to, and he's so scared. It's, it's fantastic. And then we immediately, boom, cut to that amazing surf rock intro. <laughs> And then, uh, and then they do they do like a a cool radio shift to take us into Jungle Boogie, which then brings us into the car with Vincent and Jules. It's a very nice transition because that opening is so strong with that that surf rock intro. Is it sets a perfect mood for the whole thing? And it's like, how, how do you do that transition? Like, if I were coming at it as a filmmaker and all I had was the script, and someone gave me that music you know or i had the idea to put that music in i would struggle with how to do that transition and i think <laughs> the transition they do is really good well and then we get the the tarantino special of people talking about fucking nothing in a car but it's one of the most iconic conversations <laughs> at least in the 90s that whole decade is defined by a royale with cheese it's true yeah royale with cheese boy if there was if there's a more iconically 90s film conversation I don't know what it is. Like I, I literally can't think of anything. I definitely prefer this conversation over the diner scene in uh, in Reservoir Dogs because they're just being creepy. Yeah, no, in that one, this is way better. <laughs> this is way better. 
the diner the diner scene in Reservoir Dogs I think is a good scene in that it's it's showing us the sort of strange camaraderie that these characters develop but this scene is just so much sharper because that scene was being carried by Quentin Tarantino who let's be honest is not a good actor this scene is really being car- carried by you know I mean it's John Travolta and Samuel L Jackson at the height of their respective acting prowess yes yes uh, apparently john travolta's career had started to kind of wane at this point or had been waning for a while because like he did like look who's talking and shit and and then this was like his comeback movie and it's really strange that his career had waned in such a short period of time because it if you look at it like he kind of got his start in what was it like 1973 or 74 Saturday Night Fever and Grease were the were the big ones for him and that stupid show that he was on. Welcome back. Cotter. Yeah, welcome back, Cotter. Well, that was probably like seventy two or something. Anyway, and he had L. Ron Hubbard to and, and to help him out. <laughs> and then he had like twelve years of doing great movies. Like he did some great movies in that time. He also did Blow Staying out. Alive, which is the sequel to Saturday Night Fever, which directed, which was directed by Stallone. And apparently it's one of the worst movies ever. And I really want to watch it, but he did do some great movies also is what I'm saying. <laughs> he did some great movies and he did some shit as everybody is want to do in their career. But yeah, like he only had, you know, it was only, it, it wasn't 15 full years. And then he, and then he sort of started to fade into the background and he's doing look who's talking movies. You know, it's kind of a shame because he is a great actor with Bruce Willis, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Not <laughs> so this was not their first movie together. Bruce Willis. I, I, I read a little trivia today. This is the first time I learned it. Um, apparently Bruce Willis was recruited to Pulp Fiction by Harvey Keitel because Bruce had been a fan of Reservoir Dogs, which of course Harvey had starred in. And yeah. And Harvey was like, Hey, working on this movie. I think you should be in it. And he's like, cool, I still care about acting. <laughs> Bruce Willis even said about the script, he said it's the only script he's ever done where they basically shot the script that he read when he first got it. I'm in between so diehards like, he, right now. I can totally be in your movie. Uh, I mean, I think Willis had just done Die Hard with a Vengeance, hadn't he? It comes like out in that... 95. Oh, okay. So he did, he did that after. I did not realize that. So we got the Royale with cheese and they call the Big Mac the Le Big Mac because it's the fucking Big Mac, but it's Le Big Mac. They also put mayonnaise on French fries because Vincent just got back from Amsterdam. So he's all, but apparently like, it sounds like he just took a vacation, but apparently he had been there for like a couple of years. <laughs> it's never said why, but it's definitely because he was avoiding the cops or something. Yeah. Three years. Yeah. My guess would be something like that. And he was probably, you know, he was probably some kind of a drug connection or something like that from Marcellus Wallace would be my guess. Uh, Amsterdam, you know, being what it is, he was probably able to like do some smuggling or something. That would make sense. And then they, you know, they're like, how many guys they're, they're doing, they're doing a job right now. And this is the difference between honey bunny and Ringo and Vincent and Jules. They're all professional about it. And they're just like these normal guys essentially doing a job. Like even later on, they're like, all right, let's get into character. Yeah. They don't have to ramp themselves up to be ready to to do this because they're truly violent criminals whereas pumpkin and honey bunny like honey bunny especially had to ramp herself up to be able to get to that point like she's screaming at everybody jules and vincent just walk in not before they (laughs) they get ready for work they get up to the door and they're they're like all right what time is it like all right uh we still have a few minutes let's uh hang back and then they continue their conversation about mia wallace and the foot massage 
and how it's a little, you know, why, how intimate is a foot, foot massage? That is the debate we're having. In this case, somebody got thrown out of a window or off a balcony or some shit for potentially touching this lady's feet. Allegedly. Allegedly. We learn later that, you know, that might not exactly be the case. I do like how this sets up the story that we're going to get. It sets up two of the stories that we're going to get in that, you know, like first off, it's it's us getting to know Jules and Vincent a little bit. And then it's setting up where the day is going for these guys, you know, and in the case of Vincent, he's going to be taking Mia Wallace out uh, at a later date. So it sets up that story and the potential conflict of that story, which admittedly, during the course of that story, Vincent totally wants to fuck Mia. Like, there's no question. About oh, that. God. Yeah. Like, like the second he meets her, he's like, oh, OK, well, maybe not the second he meets her because he's too fucking whacked out high on mind. heroin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but by the time they're done dancing, it's. Uh... <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm, I'd say it's before they even really get into dinner too much. You know, I don't think their food arrives before he wants to fuck her. Well, that's true. They do. They do have a little connection. Um, also, I don't think I could fuck a chick who doesn't know what a square looks like. <laughs> that has frustrated me ever since the first time I actually watched Pulp Fiction start to finish. I was like, that's not a fucking square. What the hell? Well, also, I think that's why they that's why he pointed it out <laughs> with the, when she drew the shape in the air and then it didn't get that little <laughs> dotted line rectangle. It's an iconic scene. So iconic that they bring it back and kill Bill. That is a, it's a really good moment. It is. It's a great little scene and uh, part of one of the most iconic 90s scenes that there is. Not the most. I would argue that the Royale with cheese scene is more iconic. It's that and the dancing. Yeah. That fucking, that, it's the second most iconic yeah. scene in the movie. I know the character's name is Marvin, but I just kept calling him Samurai Jack. because that's Oh, yeah, because Philomar does the voice yep. of Samurai Jack. Yes. Among like a million other things. Yes, he's a prolific voice actor, Phil Lamar, and also uh, would later go on to be on Mad TV. I got a question. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, did he forget this character's name or did he call him Brad on purpose? Who'd he call Brad? Uh, so they, they go in and then everybody's eating cheeseburgers or whatever. And he's like, oh, you must be Brett, right? And then he asks him about the metric system. And he's like, well, why don't they do, you know, why, why do they call it a Royale with cheese? And he's like, well, what the metric system? And he's like, look at the big brain on Brad. No. He says Brad. No, he says Brad. It is Brad. It is 100% Brad. I, I am. I do not concede this one. I'm sorry. I do. I do. I'm, Insert the audio. Insert the audio. I will I'm do that. I'm telling you he says Brad. You know what they call a quarter pound of a cheese in France? No. Tell him, Vincent. Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. You know why they call it that? Uh, because of the metric system? Check out the big brain on Brad. We'll argue more about that later. I, I, I like this scene. This scene's really good with the, we get the, the Bible verse and all that shit. Another super iconic moment from the movie and big kahuna burger. And I've never seen anybody eat a, eat a, eat a burger and drink a Sprite more intimidatingly than he does. <laughs> Tarantino actually says about the Sprite scene. He said he cut it that way specifically because when Samuel L. Jackson is drinking that Sprite, and you're right, he's like, he's so challenging. <laughs> the staring, to, staring daggers into this poor kid. <laughs> like, like, say something, motherfucker. Like, like, he's just staring. And he never breaks eye contact with him while he's, while he's drinking his soda dry. He says, 
he specifically did not cut back to Brett because you expect him to during that scene and not cutting back to Brett amps up the tension. And it really does. Yeah, I noticed that a couple times in the movie. He when, when you think that there should be like a little bit of coverage, like going back and forth, like when one person's speaking, the other person is off camera. You know, they he does that a few times. Uh, the, like the scene with Butch, especially the scene with Butch, but he does it with the wolf later too. When Jimmy oh, opens yeah. the door, yeah, yep. You expect him to cut back, and he doesn't. So yeah, but oh my god, the the look in the look in Jackson's <laughs> eyes. Like he, like he just he just walked up to that table and flopped his dick out on it and was like, "Say something, motherfucker." <laughs> yeah. Uh. So here, here's here's the age old question though: What is in that fucking briefcase? Well, uh, there are many theories. Do you have a favorite? It's a glow in the dark dildo. I first heard the theory that it's uh Marcellus Wallace's soul. Yes, I heard back, that one. Uh, shortly after the first time I saw the movie in the nineties. And I like that theory a lot, but it doesn't hold up to real scrutiny specifically because it relies on the fact that when we first meet Marcellus, he's got the bandaid on the back of his head. And what the person who posited the theory said is that, uh, according to certain mythologies, the devil comes in through the back of the head to steal your soul, right? That's what the person claims who, who, I first read this theory from. But we all know if you watch Bubba Hotep, it comes out of your butthole. Yes, and that is why I don't believe it. No. <laughs> the reason that doesn't hold water is because Tarantino has said, and Tarantino loves creating mysteries, so he doesn't he doesn't say a whole ton as far as like dispelling mythologies around his movies. But in this case, he did say that the reason there's a band-aid on the back of Marcellus Wallace's head is because on the day of shooting. There was a big scar on the back of Marcella or on the back of Ving Rhames head in that exact spot. And he felt it was distracting. So they put a bandaid there because <laughs> I guess he felt that if he was going to have something distracting in frame, he wanted it to be intentionally distracting. So what's in it then? What is it? And why does it glow? Is it, is it alien body parts? It's unobtainium. Oh, the thing that doesn't exist or whatever. The absolute worst MacGuffin in history. No, um, <laughs> it's the best MacGuffin in history is what it is <laughs> in that it, it's whatever you want it to be. It's the meaning behind Pulp Fiction. I don't like it. I want him to just tell me. I don't like to think about that kind of shit. <laughs> if he's smart, he never will. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. But like, he can just tell me. He has said, and I think he's 100% <laughs> right. He said, you don't want me to tell you. Because the second I tell you, it's not going to be interesting anymore. It was already not interesting. I just kind of want to know what it is. <laughs> See, me learning that, stuff like that sends me into a fucking frenzy of like, well, how the fuck did you come up with that idea? Like, what the fuck is going on? It makes it more interesting to me. Well, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe, maybe you're one of the few, the proud, the people who would still be interested if you knew what was in the briefcase. But I agree with Tarantino. I think it's way more interesting without knowing what's in the briefcase. It's like. It's like the, well, okay, this is a terrible comparison, but it's like the box in XX in that, in that opening story. Nothing they tell you could ever satisfy you. Tell me what's in the fucking box. Why aren't those kids eating? And how come, how come when he tells somebody else what's in the box, they stop eating too? What the fuck? Fuck Jack Ketchum for that story too. <laughs> this scene is pretty cut and dry. They get the briefcase. Well, they, they shoot. Brett, and then it just kind of fades to black. Well, yeah. 
He, he shoots a guy, he calls him Flock of Seagulls. He says the Bible verse while Marvin's just kind of cowering in the up against the wall. And then they, you know, he says the Bible verse. They both blow Brad away from Brett. Brett, they both blow Brett away from, from both sides. It's kind of brutal. But it's it just is. like another day at the office for him. Yep. Oh, and then we can't forget the... What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? What country are you from? What? what? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English in what? What? English, motherfucker! Do you speak it? Yes. Then you know what I'm saying. Yes. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. What? Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. He's black. Go on. He's bald. Does he look like a bitch? What? Does he look like a bitch? No! Then why you try to fuck him like a bitch, Brett? I didn't. Yes, you did. Yes, you did, Brett. You tried to fuck him. And my son's Wallace don't like to be fucked by anybody except Mrs. Wallace. You almost feel bad for him. If it wasn't oh. if it wasn't so funny. Yeah, it I mean, Brett is in a terrible position in this. <laughs> like and he doesn't realize it until Jewel shoots the guy on the couch. Like he still thinks he might walk away from this. Yeah, he's like, I I'm, just want I just want to let you guys know that I'm just really sorry that things didn't work out. I don't we know the, started this thing with the best of intentions. Yeah, it sounds like you had no idea what the fuck you were doing. Maybe don't get involved. Yeah, whatever went down, they didn't have a clue what they were walking into. So, so he gets shot, and then, then it just kind of fades into Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. We immediately fade into a five-minute-long shot on Bruce Willis not doing anything. Not doing a goddamn thing, but listening very intently to Ving Rhames, who is off-screen, telling him, Night of the fight, you may feel a slight sting. That's pride fucking with you. Fuck pride. Pride only hurts. It never helps. You fight through that shit. Because a year from now, when you're kicking it in the Caribbean, you're going to say to yourself, Marcellus Wallace was right. I got no problem with that, Mr. Wallace. In the fifth, your ass goes down. Say it. fifth my ass goes down he never comes right out and says you're throwing a fight but everything he's saying leads to that and then he the culmination of it is in the fifth your ass goes down vincent and julia show up in the middle of this conversation also and vincent sits down next to him next next to butch and they exchange well, some no, words no he he sits down and then butch walks over after him oh that's right that's right because they're i'm like wait what when did marcellus walk away but he didn't butch walks away because why would marcellus walk away he's fucking in charge yeah and he's in his club obviously so then butch walks up to vincent that's right and then you know then they have some fucking stuff Oh, but not before the bartender asks Vincent about Mia and the, the date that they're supposed to go on. Yeah. And Vince is like, it's not a date. 
It's like, <laughs> what do you think? I'm stupid. It's a big man's wife. I'm going to sit across from her. I'm going to laugh at her fucking jokes and chew with my mouth closed. And that's it. Bartender's like, hey, man, whatever. Your business. And then then when, when Butch and him have that exchange, it's like, you can tell these guys hate each other for like whatever reason already. Yeah, just immediate. There's some immediate fuck you energy between both of them just right off the bat. And neither of them are backing down. Like, th- these are two guys who very clearly, they're low-life scumbags, you know? They grew up in that whole, uh, or at any rate, have thrived in the whole, I don't want to say alphas thing, you know? <laughs> but like that thing that gets labeled as alphas, you know, where everybody is challenging each other like wild animals, you know? And they only respect the ability to inflict pain upon each other and you know admittedly butch is a professional boxer he doesn't back down to a lot of people you know but vincent is a professional killer so he doesn't back down to a lot of people so these guys are both staring at each other like the fuck you gonna do about it and then vincent vega or excuse me marcellus wallace calls vincent over and that's the moment where butch is like okay i i can't really fuck with this guy because He's friends with the boss. The chick with the piercings. That was my next note, actually. The chick with the piercings talking about how all of her piercings are done with a needle. And it's just better that it's all done with a needle. The first of two Arquettes in this movie. There's another Arquette. Yes, Alexis Arquette plays the man in the bathroom. Oh, shit. That is who that is. I knew that person looked familiar. Before she, like, fully transitioned. Yep. And now she's dead. Yes, sad. But you know, on, on a happier note, Eric Stoltz. I fucking love Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz is the shit. Especially, he's, especially in this movie. He's really funny. He's, and he's so great. Kind of a dick. And Oh, yeah. I think that's Absolutely. where he's kind of the best. <laughs> when he's a cocky asshole, he just like, it's just, it's just perfect casting. Yeah, he just, he, he, he can really own that character. It reminds me very much of the character from Kicking and Screaming. Like, yeah, I was just thinking about that, just. If they if that same character went down a different path, I could see him becoming Lance. Uh, every every time I see Eric Stoltz, I think of Chet immediately. Just Chet from from kicking and screaming because that's just that's just so that's also super Eric Stoltz oh, to me. Just both that of these character's characters. Name was yeah. Chet. I'm so bad with names. <laughs> fuck. So Vincent is there getting some drugs. <clears throat> Trudy Trudy is the one with all the shit in her face because they have that little conversation. He <laughs> they go into the bedroom. No, and that's Jody. That's my wife. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, the, the conversation is like, hey, Trudy, uh, Trudy's looking for a date or whatever. And he's like, is Trudy the one with all the shit in her face? And he's like, no, that's my wife. No, but it was tongue, it was tongue in cheek. So that's nice. <laughs> that's Jody. They both that's laugh about it. Yeah, they're friends. They have a thing. Uh, he's buying some drugs. And then Vincent gets all fucking like, well, I was in Amsterdam. So I don't know if this stuff's going to be any good. And then Eric Stoltz is very confident. He's like, I'll take the Pepsi challenge with any of that Amsterdam shit. Like, all right, guy, just heroin. This is a seller's market. I don't even know what that means. I don't know what that means either. (laughs) How does it being a seller's market make it better than it being a buyer's market? Like, you would think competition would be fiercer in a buyer's market. Like, a seller's market would encourage laziness among sellers, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's what it sounds like, right? But but he's making a counter-argument to that. So, I yeah, I just feel like maybe he's one of these guys who has a lot of confidence and not a lot of brains like maybe that was an intentional slip on his on <laughs> Tarantino's writing like it, Tarantino knew exactly why he wrote it that way he sells him the good stuff uh he calls it the mad the man. fucking this right here is a fucking madman from his own personal stash is what he gives to Vincent and Vincent's like can I shoot up here it's so weird i could never do drugs it's yucky 
Vincent buys $1,500 worth of heroin from Lance in, in a single drop. Yep. And I, I, I saw a thing on Reddit today where someone was like, Vincent spends $1,500 on heroin, but gets mad about a $5 shake. That's because heroin's worth it. That's true. Heroin is worth it. Oh, God, if I had a dollar for every time I've dropped a dollar on heroin, I'd have more heroin. Let's go do some heroin. That that's like that's like rich people myth. Fuck that noise. I can't even. <laughs> yeah, I got crack money, not heroin money. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so so Vincent Vincent does his shooting up, then he goes to meet Mia. So this is this is where <laughs> shit starts to get like really real here. <laughs> One of the first times, backtracking just a moment to Vincent shooting up. One of the first times I ever watched that scene, my mom walked in right on that scene. You know where it, it goes into this stylized thing where. It's just darkness, and in the middle of the darkness, he unzips this syringe kit and opens it up, <laughs> and then he mixes, you know, he, he cooks the heroin on the spoon, and then he shoots, he sticks it into his vein and draws back the plunger to suck a little, little bit of blood in to make sure he found the vein, and then shoots it in. My mom walks in during that scene. I'm 17 years old, you know, <laughs> and she's like, what the hell are you watching? What is wrong with you? How can you watch this garbage? I'm like, Mom, it's just a movie. I'm not doing heroin here in your living room. Like, her reaction, you would think I was doing heroin in her living room. She was so appalled. Interesting fact about that story. She later became a crack addict. Oh, well, that would do it. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm like... Okay, so you're really, really upset about me watching someone do heroin in a movie, but you're okay with doing crack. All right. Yeah, this is America. It's the land of hypocrisy. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I have my own hypocrisies and stuff. I, I, I shouldn't judge anybody, but like just ridiculous levels of hypocrisy like that always wow me. Like I'm <laughs> constantly impressed by humanity's ability to hold completely opposing perspectives at the same time what we get here in the next in the next bit when vincent ends up letting himself into mia's house because you know she's busy doing shit we get the meme the meme of john travolta in the house listening to her talk and he hears her on the on the on the speaker and he's just like looking around all confused and you've seen that meme a thousand times oh yes and the reason it should be stressed the reason he's looking so confused is because he's high on heroin at the time yeah, he, good stuff, apparently. Yes. As we'll see later. Extremely high and disoriented on heroin, which glad he drove his Malibu over to her house, by the way. So my only question here is, and this isn't really important, but it's something I think about. Why is she saying, hey, go find the intercom to for him to say hi and okay. Okay. And for, and for her yeah. just to be like, go make yourself a drink. Well, I think it's just that you know, he looked like he wanted to say something, so she was telling him, and then he oh, didn't have man. anything to say, which is perfectly in character for how high he was. Oh, also, can we talk about his outfit in this scene? Isn't he wearing the same shitty suit that he wears at the beginning of the movie? Sort of. Does does he he wears a real tie in the beginning, right? Yeah. He has a bolo tie on oh, in this scene. Oh, okay. And I'm pretty sure he's wearing jeans. Oh, all right. So this is casual, <laughs> Vincent. All right. Apparently. And he's got his hair up in that douchey fucking ponytail. <laughs> which the hair looks awful when it's down, too. So I don't think we're winning any fashion it's like, contests it's here. It's so but... greasy and gross looking. 
all that heroin. He just he melts it and rubs some of it in his hair. He just forgets to take showers is what it is. Mia's snorting some coke in the bathroom. So the only thing I don't like about this scene is that a big chunk of it got cut out in the edit because initially when she comes walking out, she has a video camera and she's doing this like interview thing with Vincent. And this is actually in the deleted scenes. uh, If you have the old VHS or the DVD or the Blu-ray, the current iterations that, that have been on the market thus far, there is a deleted scene of her interviewing him. And she kind of asks him these questions about himself. She, she has this premise of uh, everybody is either a Beatles fan or an Elvis fan. Which one are you? You know, like you can like Beatles and be an Elvis man and you can like Elvis and be a Beatles man, but you're either one or the other, which comes back in the next scene, but with no context. And the reason I don't like that cut, I understand why Tarantino cut it. He said he cut it because at the time he wrote it, it felt like an original premise. But by the time he made the film, everybody was doing that sort of a scene with one of the characters interviewing one of the other characters using a video camera. So he felt like it was just too overdone at that point. And I get that. But it was supposed to be a reveal when she drops the camera and you see Mia Wallace's face for the first time. It was like the reveal of Uma Thurman because in Tarantino's mind, she's like the ultimate hot lady. And so there was supposed to be like a big reveal with her in that moment, but she only did it after the video interview. So when he cut the video interview, he had to cut the reveal and consequently the reveal of Mia who has had her face hidden this whole time up till now is just them pulling up to Jackrabbit Slims and it feels very anticlimactic. <laughs> Consequently, I've always, yeah. Okay. I never knew that fact, but yeah, that seems right. But we get the foot shot. Yeah. It's the only cut in the movie that I just hate. Let's go to Jackrabbit Slims and talk about this fucking 50s nostalgia puke all over the fucking place. <laughs> this is the only time <laughs> in the entire movie. That they don't use existing sets. Oh, they built this? Yes, they built this from scratch. This was a soundstage. Um, in fairness, I do kind of want to go here. It looks kind of fun. I want... Oh, <laughs> oh God, the fucking milkshake thing. I just... Let's, fuck it. Who cares? Let's just talk about the milkshake. Buscemi is their fucking waiter. He's Buddy Holly. So this took me a minute. <laughs> and he is the most does not give a fuck about <laughs> what he's doing. Yeah, when he brings the drinks, he like scene. throws the napkins on the table. He's like, there you go. <laughs> But my favorite part about this is it's something that took me until yesterday to figure it out. So they order their food. He gets, you know, I want the, I want the steak. Bloody as hell or burnt to a crisp. Gross. But, you know, bloody, of course. And she orders, she orders the $5 shake. Now, he doesn't say chocolate or vanilla. What he does say is Martin and Lewis or Amos and Andy. <laughs> and I'm like, yes. And it took me, I never really thought about it. And I'm like, wow, that's really, is that, is it racist? That's all that, that could be on Daniel Tosh's show. <laughs> Is it racist? Martin and Lewis or Amos and Andy? Well, Amos and Andy was definitely racist. <laughs> if you if you know what it is, I did not at the time until very shortly thereafter. No, excuse me. It was shortly before I actually saw Pulp Fiction. But after I had read the script, I saw the Nicolas Cage, Samuel L. Jackson movie, Amos and Andrew is all about. I mean, the whole movie is about racism and stuff. And I told my dad, I had never heard of Amos and Andy. And my dad was like, wow, they made a movie called Amos and Andrew. And I'm like, what, what does that mean? And so he kind of explained Amos and Andy to me. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I, I, 
like I realized what I had read in pulp in the pulp fiction script, and then I saw the movie, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. But yeah, Amos and Andy, Amos and Andy was a, a pretty yeah. pretty racist show. It only took back me in the day. It only took me twenty years to figure out that joke because. <laughs> <laughs> So we we just get a lot more more Tarantino conversation about stuff rolling rolling cigarettes. Hey, we were in Amsterdam. We I like to go to Amsterdam too. Yippee! Uh, so I hear you shot a pilot. There was a conversation earlier where she shot a pilot, and then Samuel L. Jackson's character explains to Vincent <laughs> what a fucking TV show is, basically. And that was actually really appropriate because at that time people weren't quite as media savvy. Oh yeah, nineteen ninety four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they needed it explained. Since then, of course, because Pulp Fiction has permeated the culture, and because the media cycle and everything is a little more well-known, nowadays you wouldn't need to explain that. But at the time, uh, you needed to. Then we get, uh, she talks about the Fox Force 5 and how it's basically just Kill Bill. Yeah. It uh, is Kill basically Bill. Kill Bill, yeah. Just ended up being Fox Force 5, the movie. And he said about Kill Bill, he said, Kill Bill doesn't take place in the universe of Pulp Fiction. But Kill Bill is the type of movie they watch in the universe of Pulp Fiction. Vincent has to try that fucking $5 shake. He's like, I gotta know what a $5 shake tastes like. And he's like, you know, that's pretty good. Pretty good. It's a pretty good fucking milkshake. It's $5. <laughs> now, $5 in 1994, by the way. I was actually going to bring that up because nowadays shakes do cost $5 anywhere you go. Even McDonald's shakes are $5. So you have to keep in mind that a $5 shake in the 90s is the equivalent to a $20 shake now. It was like a buck for a shake back then. Then there's that part with the awkward silence. He takes a drink, says it's good, and then he hands it back to her. And then they kind of sit there for a second. And she's like, ooh, don't you hate that awkward silence? She's like, I'm going to go to the bathroom. You're going to sit your ass here. You're going to think of something to say, and I'll be back. And she says she's going to go powder her nose, which means she's going to go do coke in the bathroom. (laughs) <laughs> which she does she doesn't even go into a stall she does it on the counter in front of a packed fucking bathroom there's half a dozen women standing there behind her crowding in trying to get at the mirror and she's just like <laughs> ripping lines of coke and none of them seem to notice so i don't really know no one gives a shit la baby so she goes back and sits down uh and and he does think of something to say and he builds it up and she and he's like, well, I just don't want you to don't just, you know, don't be offended. She's like, I don't know. I, I'm not going to. She talks about how you never know if you're going to be offended. So that's a promise that I will have to break if I get offended by whatever you're going to say. And it's just a, I'm like, yeah, that's actually a good point. Hate when people fucking say, don't get mad. How can I know if I'm going to get mad if yeah. I don't know what you're going to say? It's very clever that she makes the point because it's the kind of thing that everybody just kind of breezes over the idea of you got to promise you're not going to get offended. Because realistically, that's one of the dumbest things you can ask somebody. You got to promise you're not going to get offended. Okay, why don't I just promise not to be surprised? Like, you can't <laughs> control that. And so, and so her actually pointing it out is a perfect example of the sort of clever snarkiness that defined 90s cinema. I promise I will not punch you in the face if I do get offended. That's a promise I can keep. But it turns out what he thought of to say he was he he asked her about the foot massage. The only thing that he touched on me was my hand when he shook it. I don't know why I kind of like that line. Like the cadence of it is nice. Yeah. I like her reaction to it too where she's like, "And what else happened?" He goes, "That's it." <laughs> you guys <laughs> like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" You guys are just like a sewing circle or whatever she says, like a bunch of cackling old bitches. <laughs> that's funny it's true 
it's a great exchange. I mean, every line of dialogue in this movie is just razor sharp. And then they announce the twist contest. The twist contest, which is the other iconic scene from the movie. And it's just them dancing badly, I think, just looking really awkward and dopey, especially John Travolta with his fat fatness, like at his fattest. (laughs) (laughs) I heard a conspiracy theory that they actually lost the contest and stole the trophy from the winners (laughs) because she said she wanted the trophy. Yep. You don't see anybody else dance, so we don't know. And as I'm watching it this time, I think, you know, that's a valid that's a valid point because I think they're doing a little bit better job. I mean, they're doing a better job than I would if I got up there and tried to dance, but they're not even twisting most of the time. And it's a twist contest. Yeah, they twist like for a few seconds at the beginning. Yeah. And then it's like just them all over the place doing all kinds of stuff. And like, well, if it's a twist contest, you got to twist. It's because they're both high. He's on heroin. Yeah, which, that's which right. Actually, their dancing styles kind of kind of match that, too. She's kind of like frantic and jiggling around and he's kind of like yeah. mellow and she- just kind of. <laughs> She's flying on coke. He's cruising on heroin. And they're both just up there doing whatever the fuck they feel like. <laughs> so, yeah, they probably did lose it. And they probably did steal the trophy later. Oh, that's that's a that's a good one. I like it. And it, it, it just cuts. It just fades. Fate does a fade out before we know what the fuck happened. Uh, they get back to Mia's house. Vincent is obviously in love at this point. He goes to the bathroom and he's doing the thing in the mirror where he's like, uh, you're just going to have one drink. You're going to go home. You're not going to do anything. You're going to shake her hand or whatever. And you're just going to politely excuse yourself. You're not going to just, you're just going to go home. It's going to be fine. The timing on that though, where, where like the third time we cut back to him, cause she's out there. Like, again, she's, she's ripped on Coke. She's still got tons of energy to burn. So she decides she's going to have a dance party all by herself out there. <laughs> yeah. And, and the third time we cut back to him, he's like, you're going to politely excuse yourself. Go home, jerk off, and that's all you're going to do. <laughs> yep, yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot that line. I totally... I, I, uh, yeah, but things don't go as planned. She's, like, smoking as she reaches in his coat for uh, for the lighter, and she lights a cigarette. She goes to put the lighter back in the pocket, and she pulls out the baggie of fucking heroin. It's not in a balloon, because he didn't have a balloon. Exactly. That's a key point that I did not catch until I was reading up on it, because uh, I'm not into drugs. but. In 90s drug culture, and possibly today, I don't know, I'm still not into drugs. If it was a white powder in a baggie, you assumed it was Coke, and if it was in a balloon, you assumed it was heroin, but Lance was out of balloons. Okay, that, that that's new to me. I wouldn't have known that either. Yeah, I had no idea until I read it in a forum somewhere back in the 90s. Sure. Apparently you can snort heroin, which I didn't know. You can, but you're supposed to snort my understanding again. I haven't done it. You're supposed to snort way fucking less than you do of Coke. (laughs) And again, (laughs) keeping in mind that this is Lance's personal stash, so it's going to be the highest grade shit that he has available. Yeah, which explains what happens next when she like finds it. She's like, ooh, cool. I'm going to I'm going to do lines of this. And they're the lines that are just like the Coke that she was doing. It to just like cigarette size lines of coke, or rather of the madman heroin. And she rips one of those babies and it is instant fucking taneous. And it fades out again like it's gonna like switch to something else, like we're gonna go visit some other characters for a second. But then nope, it pops back on and Vincent's like, Oh god, don't fucking die on me, you're OD and what the fuck, man? And then they're gonna they're gonna go for a ride, and he calls 
His name's Lance, right? Calls Lance. Yes, he calls Lance on that giant fucking cell phone. <laughs> God, I love the 90s. and Lance's Lance's reaction. <laughs> uh, are you talking to me on a cellular phone? I don't know you. Who is this? Don't come here. I'm hanging up the phone. Prank caller. Prank caller. Like the second they hang up, he's fucking like right there, crashing into his lawn, <laughs> crashing into his fucking house. He just he just barrels right into it, straight across the lawn into the corner of the house. Yeah, it's it's pretty great. And then he's dragging her inside. Lance is like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And I love Vincent's reaction. He's like, "Do you know who this is? This is Marcellus Wallace's wife. If she dies, I'm a fucking grease spot, and I will be." Forced to tell Marcellus that you refuse to help her in her moment of need. He's like, all right, fucking get her inside. Come on. Vincent is a fucking prick. <laughs> yes. It's demonstrated more later too. And, but it, it's, it's always funny. Like <laughs> it makes me laugh. I hate John Travolta, but I also kind of love John Travolta. He's a great actor. I mean, he, he, you know, like say what you will about him as a person, but, uh, the man turns in a performance, even in that piece of shit he did called the fan. I don't know if you've seen that one. <laughs> I've not. You've brought it up. It is. Dirt, it is man. a nightmare, but he is, he is really trying to do something in that movie. Like he's committing to the worst movie I've seen since the room. It's like that, the room and champagne and bullets, but th- this movie is bad on a whole different level. The one like, thing he, I can at least say is that he, he fucking gives it. Yes. When he- no matter how shitty it is yes and that's that's the thing is like he's committing so hard to this character that is so fucking bad yeah he's he's a great actor naturally his wife is pissed off because there's some chick ODing on their living room rug a little irritated was she so they need to give her an adrenaline <laughs> shot nobody knows what they're doing because nobody's ever done this before this is another doesn't help that lance is like screaming at her Where's shouting my fucking instructions medical we need to get the- yeah so they they get the adrenaline shot right Vincent and Lance are like over this chick <laughs> over Uma Thurman and then he's like all right Lance hands him the thing he's like all right so you're gonna you need to fucking get it get it into her chest into her heart and he's, <laughs> he's like wait I don't want to do it and he's like when I bring an Odian bitch to your fucking house then you can then then I'll give her the shot okay but then he's like you got to do it you got to do this and then he makes the stabbing motion and he's like wait I got to stab her three times <laughs> which makes me laugh like, no you just gotta do it once but you gotta do it hard enough to get through her chest plate I love whatever that. the fuck i gotta stab her three times it makes me very happy just he's such an idiot <laughs> and now the wife is officially into it she's like this is tribute yeah, this, is, this is fun she's laughing while they're trying to do all this shit she's so into them punching this needle into her oh yeah she's into needles that's right so she's probably like all turned on right now so- uh-huh she's practically <laughs> masturbating in the background so yeah and he asked another stupid question he's like does it got to be exact and Lance is like, yeah, it's got to be exact. It's got to be in her fucking heart. So yeah, I'm pretty sure it's got to be fucking exact. So he draws like a little thing over over her heart ish, and he's like, is that her heart? I don't know. And then the Jody, she's like, yeah, that's her heart. You fucking idiots. I love the moment where Travolta's like, well, well then what happens? And Lance just goes, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of curious about that one myself. <laughs> he's like, this isn't fucking funny, man. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it is. This kid's pretty fucking funny, actually. He stabs down. He he gets it. It's in her, and then he, you know, she immediately pops up. And when he stabs oh, her, man. it is a fucking brutal. Like I found out later, and and this isn't going to be news to any hardcore Pulp Fiction fans, but I was shocked at the what seemed like the brutality of that shot because he literally goes like he swings his arm back and brings it down and just slams it, and you see you know like the needle there and this is the 90s you know this is pre-cgi this is like cgi was not ubiquitous 
and he slams it down into her chest. I found out that the way they did that was to actually shoot it in reverse with him starting at the chest with the retracting needle and then yank it up and go back like, you know, just basically do the motion in reverse. And that's why it looks so fucking hard when he brings it down. It's wild that a scene this tense can be played for comedy because it is. It's very funny. It's a very funny scene, but it's also like nail bitingly intense. Yeah, it is stupidly funny. And it's one of those things I laughed both times I watched it. It was just ridiculous. (laughs) And then they tell her to say something and she's like, something, something. (laughs) <laughs> it's a very awkward silent drive home now i will i you know what maybe it's not awkward maybe it's not awkward this time because that was the whole that was the whole conceit of the thing before now they're they're like buddies they've been through some <laughs> shit together and now they can just sit there in silence and it'll be fine they've definitely developed a more intimate bond which is all kind of culminated in her sharing the joke with him yes so they get to her house which she i don't think we mentioned that earlier oh, no, we did not I forgot when that part. she explained that her character in fox force five was going to tell a joke at the end of every episode. Well, she only got to tell the one joke because she only did the one episode, but he wants to hear it. And she's like, no, I'm not going to tell it to you. And then it, like, oh, well, now it's been built up too much. There's no way I'm telling you. And so after they agree that they're not going to tell Marcellus what happened, she goes, uh, do you want to hear the joke? <laughs> it's like, I think I'm a little too petrified to laugh. She's like, yeah, you're not going to laugh. It's not a funny joke, but I'll tell you if you want to hear it. Vincent. Do you want to hear my Fox Force 5 joke? Sure. Except I think I'm still a little too petrified to laugh. No, you won't laugh because it's not funny. But if you still want to hear it, I'll tell it. I can't wait. Okay. Three tomatoes are walking down the street. Papa tomato, mama tomato, and baby tomato. Baby tomato starts lagging behind, and Papa tomato gets really angry. Goes back and squishes him says ketchup (laughs) ketchup she tells him the joke it's a stupid fucking joke and he doesn't laugh he does he does he does laugh he goes oh well yeah i guess he kind (laughs) of giggles at how stupid it is yeah and then they they agree (laughs) well vincent's first like uh pretty sure marcellus doesn't need to know anything about this right and she's like yeah um if he found out about this i'd be in as much trouble as you so We'll just both keep our fucking mouths shut. And he's like, uh, no, you fucking wouldn't. Let's not pretend that that's the case. But OK, let's <laughs> we'll agree not to say anything. Yeah. Then she walks away. He blows her a kiss because he's all in love now and shit. The end of that story. The end of that story. Now, then we cut immediately to somebody watching what looks like a very racist ass cartoon. <laughs> yes, very. It's so cheesy looking. I, I and my understanding is it was considered like really cheesy shit even back in its day. But yeah, they they composite a still frame over someone's mouth just speaking the words that these characters are speaking. And it's super racist, highly racist stereotypes of uh, Inuit people. And it turns out uh, it's young Butch. It's young Butch and old Christopher Walken comes into the house, all fucking Christopher Walken-y. And they cast a kid who looks perfect for young Bruce Willis gotta say oh you mean he doesn't look like joseph gordon levitt with fucking prosthetics on his face (laughs) i thought they did a good job on that but no like this kid really looks like 
He could. I mean, shit, for all I know, it might have been Bruce Willis's son. I have no idea. I'm not going to scroll through IMDb until I find out who played Young Butch. So to make this longer scene a little shorter, Christopher Walken comes in and tells tells little Butch about how his dad hid this fucking watch up his ass. And now he's giving it to him. If you want to expound on that, go ahead. That's it's interesting because uh, Tarantino has said, and if you pay attention, it, it plays out that um, he took it through Butch's ancestry. Like this, this watch came down to him from his great grandfather, through his grandfather, through his father, and now to him. And his great-grandfather was fighting in World War I, and that was this sort of heroic thing. He came home a hero, he brought home the watch, put it in a coffee can, gave it to his son, right? So, like, World War I is heroic. World War II, where his grandfather fought, was tragic. His grandfather died in the Battle of Wake Island. It was, a, it was, it was very, you know, everybody, all the Marines on Wake Island died. And, uh, and so, but before he, you know, before he died, he knew he was going to die. Before he did, he gave the watch to a gunner on a on a ship that was leaving, who he'd never met before, but he trusted him to take the watch and give it to his unborn or to his newborn son, who he had never met. And then three days later, he was dead. But the gunner kept his word and brought the watch home to your dad. And then, so that so you have the heroic war, you have the tragic war, and then we get to Vietnam, which is comedy. <laughs> because Butch's father hid the watch up his ass, and and it's presented exactly that way. He's like he hid it in the one place he knew he could up his ass. <laughs> Five years he wore this uncomfortable hunk of metal up his ass until he died of dysentery from having to watch. watch up his ass. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I kept it in my ass for two more years, and now I give the watch to you out of my ass. He doesn't put it like that, but that's what I always think of. No, thank you, sir. I'm and good. Then, <laughs> and then Butch wakes up, and it, it, it's right before the fight that we were seeing discussed earlier in the movie. And then it cuts to the title card, The Gold Watch. And, we and don't, then we skip the fight. Yeah, we, we don't skip the fight. fight. All, what we this ain't see, Rocky, motherfucker. So what we do know is that the other, the other fighter is dead. We hear that on the radio. It's like just... Immediately. Yeah. And then there's a cab waiting down in an alley, and then you see fucking Butch come jumping off of this fucking balcony or whatever fire escape thing it's not about yeah it's a fire uh, escape. yeah he's he he jumps out of a window i don't even think there's a fire escape there i oh, think there he jumps like 20 feet down into this dumpster yep. he tosses his bag out and then jumps down into this dumpster and every time i see someone jump into a dumpster all i can think is you have no fucking idea what's in that dumpster there could be anything in there there could be a big spike of metal aiming right up at you <laughs> Maybe he checked it before the fight. Maybe. I don't know. But suffice to say, he's clearly ducking out the back incognito. And and they're talking on the radio about how, oh, he had to know what he did. But, you know, we already are on the inside of it. We understand that the reason ran immediately from the fight was because he had betrayed Marcellus Wallace by winning the fight. Yes. Uh, and, and the second he jumps out of the garbage can, he's in the cab and off they go. Very sharp, snappy cut to keep things moving forward quick. Yep, and the cab driver, uh, I kept on accidentally, it kept on autocorrecting Butch's name to Bitch, so if I say, if I if I call him <laughs> Bitch, <laughs> that's why, because I'm reading it. <laughs> and I don't know if it kept autocorrecting it, or if I just kept on missing the U and hitting the I instead. Yeah, they're right next to each other, so it would have been easy 
for either of those. But I got Butch written down once somewhere down the bottom of my notes, but a bitch is everywhere. So the, the cab driver who is a lady, what is her, what is her name? The character's name is Esmeralda Villalobos. Yeah, right. And she's like, what's it like to, she basically wants to know, what's, what's it like to kill a man? And he's like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> this is interesting because this actress, uh, I'm going to, Tarantino discovered her. I don't know if he wrote this part specifically for her or not. I have not heard him talk on the subject, but I do know that he discovered her in a like a a, a student film called Curdled, in which she played a forensic. Well, she played a cleaning lady, but who cleaned up murder scenes, and she's obsessed with the idea of people murdering each other. And the character's name is Esmeralda Villa Lobos. But the actress's name is Angela Jones. So like <laughs> two polar opposite names there. But Tarantino said it that it uh, the movie struck him because not only was the subject matter interesting of this death and murder obsessed woman getting a job as a cleaning lady, cleaning up crime scenes and then encountering a serial killer who would return to the scene of his crime. So not only was it interesting for that, but it was interesting because she was actually a drama student. And he said, typically... Filmmaking students and drama students did not intermingle. And so consequently, student films tend to have very bad acting because it's it's film students, not drama students who are doing the acting. And he said this one really stood out because she was a drama student and uh, and he, he really liked her in that short film. So he cast her as Esmeralda Villalobos and then later on would go on to produce under his uh, his independent label that was very short lived. It turned out uh, Rolling Thunder films he produced a remake of curdled into a feature-length movie starring as uh angela jones and i believe it was william baldwin the baldwin that nobody knows one of the tertiary baldwins yes i do like her in this and and the way she says butch kind of makes me wish my name was butch honestly butch (laughs) yeah i'm into it so she's she's driving him she's very Oh, he notices. He notices her name too. She's like, you know, what's it like to kill a man? He's like, you know what? Give me one of them cigarettes. I'll, I'll tell you. And he, he says her name, Esmeralda Villa Lobos, and I'm like, isn't it Villa Lobos? Why is she not correcting him? But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But she's like, she... what's your name? He's like Butch. She's like, what does it mean? He's like, well, I'm American. Our names don't mean shit, which is also a funny, <laughs> funny line. It, yeah, that's a great line. I love that line every time. But then he says, like, you know how I. You know, I didn't know the dude was dead until you just fucking told me. So I, you know, I didn't really know he was, I didn't really know I killed him with my bare hands. But now that I know, uh, I don't feel the least bit bad about it. That scene was a little longer in, in the script and they cut it because it sort of goes over some stuff that he says in the phone booth in just a second. Like literally they do a cut and then he's in the phone booth saying this stuff. And he basically says, um, he says, if he was a better boxer or if he'd never strapped on the gloves, he'd still be alive. Which he, ne- if he'd never strapped on the gloves, which he never should have done, he'd still be he'd still be alive. And basically, what he says to her in the original script was, he said, the moment he became a boxer, he and stepped into that ring, he already knew he was dead. So I don't feel the least bit bad. Well, that's dark. The idea is that as a boxer, or at least his approach to being a boxer is extraordinarily nihilistic and bleak. Yeah, apparently. Uh, but the idea is that he did not he did not go down in the fifth, by the way. He said something at the phone booth that when people knew the fix was in, like the, the odds went up like exponentially, so he 
bet on himself to win and fucking beat the shit out of the other guy. Beat him to death. She ends up dropping him off at this at this hotel, and he's like, all right, so I'm going to give you a little extra money, so if anybody asks who was in your cab tonight, what do you tell them? She's like, the truth. Three well-dressed but toasty Mexican guys. Slightly toasted, she Sli- said. Slightly toasted, yes. They go their separate ways. She's fine. He's fine for like a second. Then we meet the only decent person in this fucking movie, Fabian. Fabian, I don't know, fuck, whatever. His fucking Fabi- girlfriend. Well, that's how Butch pronounces it anyway, is Fabian. Fab- it's probably something else in reality. Fabian. Because I'm an American, damn it. And she's kind of fucking adorable. She wants, she, she wishes, I wish I had a pot. And he's like, what, you want some pot? She's like, no, a pot belly, you fucking asshole. I, I love that, because it, it, you know, nowadays, but even in the 90s, you know, uh, body issue and everything, has has always been body image rather has has always been such an issue and body dysmorphia and stuff and her just like just total acceptance you know like of the idea that well what specifically women she said if a man has a pot yeah. belly it makes him look ugly specifically she says i like what she says about it's a shame that so seldom what we find pleasing to the eye and pleasing to the touch are the same thing like she's basically like yeah it'd be great to it'd be great to have a big belly you know that's cool that's that that's a great attitude to have it's not like she's totally on the body acceptance train or anything like that but she's you know she's she's leaning that direction and i like it and then here's a good foreshadowing moment butch is like if you had a pot belly i'd punch you in it yeah i know it was supposed to be like cute in his way of flirting because he's a fucking dumbass but what the fuck dude yeah a little creepy especially considering how rage-filled violent he gets in just a minute <laughs> he just he just murdered a guy on accident sure he literally like... beat a man to death <laughs> then you know she's like would you give me oral pleasure and he's like will you kiss it and she's like after so i wonder if that ever ha- came to fruition man right there like right there i we immediately get an insight into his character where she's like will you give me oral pleasure and he's not like yeah you bet no he's like well what are you gonna do for me i don't like that at all i don't lo- i don't accept that one bit i I think I think a real man recognizes that giving head is a reward in its own right. That was adorable, man. Ladies, come on. Send me some emails at sharkscrosshollywood at gmail.com and we can we can make some of this shit happen. I always think this is the next morning until I realize that it's not. They get done like fucking and then they take showers and she's brushing her teeth and he calls her a retard basically and she's like don't talk to me in that mongoloid voice and he's like i'm sorry and uh, whatever and then she's like you called me you called me a mongoloid and he's like i didn't call you a mongoloid i called you a retard i'm like jesus christ that's really mean i don't know i just said all those words very uh uh that's a that's a very european (laughs) attitude i think the because my ex-wife used to use that word mongoloid pretty liberally too (laughs) you know where you're like "I, i don't think that's kosher um that doesn't that doesn't seem right, but like, yeah, I think, I, I think maybe to a European, it's less offensive somehow. I'm not sure. I'm just speculating on that one. The next morning, I realized that Fabian really likes to brush her fucking teeth because when, when it fades out the night before, she's brushing her teeth and when it fades in or when, when it fades in, when Butch fucking bolts up because he's having some PTSD dream because he just murdered somebody and there's some loud shit going on on the TV, she's brushing her teeth again. Which I mean, in I fairness, do that, but it's just if funny. I had just sucked Bruce Willis's dick, I'd brush my teeth too. But she likes it when he's all sweaty and stinky. That's true. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah, she's very French. Yeah, and it's a it's a motorcycle movie, and I'm like, turn that shit off. Motorcycles are dumb. 
stupid friend. See, I was going to say it's foreshadowing. It is foreshadowing. You're right. God damn it. We get the conversation about blueberry pancakes. She's going to have a big stack of blueberry pancakes with. with <laughs> and the way she says blueberry pancakes is so fucking adorable. You know what I'm going to have for breakfast? What? Let me buy. I'm going to order a big plate of blueberry pancakes with maple syrup. Eggs over easy and five sausages. Anything to drink with that? Ah, that looks nice. <laughs> to drink a tall glass of orange juice and a black cup of coffee. After that, I'm going to have a slice of pie. Pie for breakfast? Any time <laughs> of the day is a good time for pie. Blueberry pie to go with the pancakes. And on top, a thin slice of melted cheese. Yeah, you had a sausage, all right. Sorry. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. I didn't realize we were back in middle school just now. <laughs> Five sausages at the same time. I've um, seen that video. All right. The watch. They didn't have a cup with them, did they? Never mind. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> Five sausages, one cup. The watch. Okay. The watch. <laughs> the watch. Um,. This is where we see uh, what Butch is, what life with Butch is really going to be like. Especially life on the run when everything's <laughs> a high stakes gamble and you're constantly under stress. Yeah, this is only going to get worse as time progresses. Uh, yeah, so Fabian very honestly accidentally forgot the fucking watch that Butch specifically apparently reminded her it's in the top drawer somewhere on the kangaroo, whatever. She didn't yeah, there's it. a little statue of the of a kangaroo by the bed that the watch was sitting on top yes. of, or was was looped over rather. She got everything else they needed. She just forgot the fucking watch, and he loses his shit and he's throwing stuff. And she's like in the corner, fucking curled up in the fetal position. Ah! And he's like, Ah, what the fuck? How fucking stupid could you possibly fucking be? And then he's like, oh, It's not your fault. It's fine. It's he fine. picks up the TV, <laughs> hurls it across the room shattering it like this is a fucking dangerous motherfucker well yeah and then but then he just immediately like he's calm and he's like fine it's it's not your fault i should have told you how how important the watch was it's fine it just means i don't get to have breakfast with you and shit uh so he throws the money down on the bed he's like here go get your fucking breakfast i'll see you later he's a little bit nicer about it than that but yeah essentially (laughs) but like he wanted to fucking keep screaming you could tell oh yeah because he we immediately cut to him out in the car he's like so fucking stupid i tell every goddamn time you know going on and on and on so butch uh goes to goes to his apartment where he shouldn't be going because the gangsters are definitely going to be looking for him there and that's kind of the thing and we already talked about the scene a little bit earlier when he's kind of he pulls up he sneaks through the alley kind of go going in the back way this is where what originally sucked me in because it's all done without background music it's just ambient sounds of the neighborhood and stuff which I hadn't really gotten into independent movies up to that point. I was just starting to dip my toes in those waters. Like, I think I had just seen Bottle Rocket. And uh, this was this was one of my very early experiences with independent movies. So, uh, so yeah, that was that hooked me right in. He gets into his apartment. He finds the watch. And then he's like, shit, I'm hungry. So then he goes and pops and it, in. It a- seems like the apartment's empty at this point. Yeah, it looks like it's empty. Then he's, he goes and gets some off-brand shitty Pop-Tarts, pops them in the toaster. And he's just kind of sitting there for a second. And he turns to the turns to his left, I guess. And there's this fucking gun on the counter, which we don't really see. It's off screen, but there's, there's a fucking gun there. And then he just picks it up, just kind of 
hangs out there. Here's the toilet flush. And then again, like you said earlier, no words. The two just stare at each other for a minute and Bruce Willis blows them away. Real good. It's good. As the, when the pop tarts come when, up. Yes. And it's, yeah, it's a perfect little moment. It, 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 it is. It, and it's so much more perfect than we're describing because there's this dawning, you know, it's like he spots the gun and that's when we and he both realize that this apartment contains way more danger than he initially thought. And then he kind of picks it up and is like, what the fuck? And then he hears Vincent flush the toilet and the entire thing just unfolds in his head. And suddenly he realizes he's the luckiest motherfucker in the world. <laughs> yep. And then uh, bitch cleans the fingerprints off the gun as he leaves. See, told you. <laughs> he doesn't, though. That's the thing. No, I don't know if you not. noticed it. <laughs> because when he picked it up, he picked it up with his left hand on the, the, the handle and the trigger. And his right hand wrapped around this giant silencer that's on this Uzi, right? His right hand wrapping around left like his, it l- would have left his fingerprints on the left side of the gun. Well, when he sets the gun down, he sets it down on its left side and then he wipes the, he wipes the trigger and he wipes the handle, but he only wipes the right side of the gun, the side that is up. He doesn't turn it over and wipe the left side of the gun where his fingerprints would have been. Well, that's okay. Cause him and Fabian are going to Bora Bora anyways, and he'll be fine. That's true. He'll probably still be fine until they find her body uh, in a ditch somewhere. <laughs> Because he fucking went a little too crazy one night. She forgot the watch again, goddammit. Uh, so he... Or something. <laughs> yeah, so he drives off. He's so incredibly proud of himself now. He's just like, yeah, this is good. And he's singing and shit. And he's just happy as a pig and shit. Because, yeah, like you said, the luckiest motherfucker on the planet. Yeah. And then... Until he's not. <laughs> he stops at a red light. <laughs> and who's walking across the street but Marcellus with some donuts and some coffee. And then Butch is like, uh, fuck. So he, he just blows through the red light, hits Marcellus, and then I don't know what happens to him. Why does he crash? He immediately gets hit by a truck. Okay. Because, he, again, he, like you said, he, he drove through the red light uh, to hit Marcellus and then into oncoming traffic, got hit, spun out, broken nose, and, uh, and then we fade out because they are both clearly unconscious for a time. And we're about to see a little bit of collateral damage. The first, the first real bit of collateral damage in the movie. Like aside from, yeah. aside from the boxer who got killed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, on the bright side, I, I, I think what, uh, what kept me sane as a young lad watching this is that she, they, Marcellus just shoots this lady in the hip accidentally. So she probably survived yeah. like where I was at in my film watching. This might've been too much for me if he had just blown her away <laughs> as well. And then the rape scene and everything on top of it, it was like, it, it would have just, been a bridge too far for my young mind my young sheltered mind and kathy lee's there too you mean kathy griffin kathy griffin that's who i meant Uh, and she was a witness and if he needs any if he needs someone to appear in court she will be happy because that man was insane he he was clearly drunk drove right through that red light and hit that truck butch is gonna run now he he runs and he ends up running into this pawn shop marcellus follows him So the dude behind the counter is like, the fuck you doing, man? He's like, nothing, just shut up. This pawn shop definitely looks shady, but not as shady as it turns out to be. Every pawn shop is shady. Yes. I mean, it's the nature of pawn shops. It, you're, you're literally, when you start a pawn shop, you're creating a business that is founded on people in, at best, 
people in their worst situations turning to you as a last resort. That's best case scenario. So yeah, Marcellus comes in and Bitch beats him down a little. Butch beats him down a little bit and kind of knocks him on the ground and he's like, ah, somebody's going to get fucking killed here. And then he's about to shoot him. But then Maynard, that's the guy behind the counter, pulls out a shotgun and says, knock that shit off. Knocks Bruce Willis out. Marcellus and him are both unconscious again. Drops a very casual N-bomb about Marcellus. No. I I can't remember if we mentioned that Marcellus is black, but Marcellus is black. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. And and Maynard is way too comfortable referring to him as but with the N-word. So clearly this guy's got scumbag written all over him. And then we find out to what degree. Marcellus and Butch, wait, I almost called him bitch on accident. I'm not even reading (laughs) Uh, They wake up bound and gagged in some creepy dungeony basement. And then Maynard's like, nobody kills anybody in my place of business except me or Zed. And then, you know, there's the doorbell. He had called somebody and said something about like, we caught a couple flies or whatever. And really creepy. The spider caught a couple flies. Uh, So Zed's here. And Zed comes downstairs and he's like, bring out the gimp. And Maynard's like, the gimp's sleeping. Like. The fuck's going on? I do believe I now I, I'm not sure about this, but this was my first exposure to the concept of gimp being used as a <laughs> reference for someone in bondage gear. I don't know when I first heard it, but I know like Daddy from uh, People Under the Stairs is in that gimp suit and stuff. Like it's it's not they don't call it a gimp suit, but that's what it is. I think Tarantino popularized the term gimp for oh, he, that specifically in this movie he definitely popularized it i know it was there before probably all of that to say that if one of our listeners knows uh whether or not gimp was already a term in the bondage community at that point or if it became the catch-all term for someone in bondage gear like like full head to toe face covered every mouth covered bondage gear i would be curious to know because at this point, it is like you say gimp suit. Everybody knows what you're referring to. <laughs> but was that the case beforehand? I don't know. I would like to know. I just want to make a horror movie called The Killer Gimp. The tagline is who's the bitch now? <laughs> you do occasionally come up with some real winners in terms of <laughs> titles and taglines. I really wish you would finally write a fucking script. Yeah, but that requires like actual effort. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you could write one page a day. Could In I? In 90 though? days, you'd be done. Could I do that, though? That's the biggest question. Yes, you could. You could. You 100% could. It might not be good, but you could do it. And you know what? Once you get done with that first one, the second one comes so much easier. That first one is the hard one. If you wrote one page a day, you could have it done in three months. It would never happen in a million years. Unfortunately, I would. I would really like to be able to just sit there and just do that. I don't think my brain will let me now. Well, no, you know what? It will. It's because I have to decide to do it. I'm lazy. It is. You are lazy. Yes, I agree. But you don't have to be. You could change that. Which is honestly have the ability, which is kind of counterintuitive because I'd literally just be sitting there. (laughs) No, right. It's not. It doesn't take physical effort, but it does take an immense amount of mental effort to face that blank page. And overcome it. God, it really does. Ugh. So you know but what else? I believe in you, Andrew. You could do it. I want to read the killer gimp. You know, <laughs> you know what else? You know what else is written in the subtitles? And this made me act I actually laughed at this because it was really fucking funny. So the gimp okay. like comes and sits down next to Zed and he starts like 
tapping his fucking fingers on top of the gimp's head. Uh-huh. And it literally says, subtitles say, Zed taps the gimp's head. And that made me laugh. I just <laughs> don't know why. You're very easily amused. That's yeah, why. I don't know why. I'm fucking immature. There's a gimp and somebody's about to get fucked in the butt. And butt fucking is one of the funniest terms ever. It is a great term. I, I have to agree. I love the term butt fucking. Arguably more than the act. I gotta say. (laughs) No, I agree with that. I agree with that 100%, actually. So they decide, in a very racist fashion, uh, to to take Marcellus (laughs) into another room. You know, eeny, meeny, miny, (laughs) moe. Not a tiger in this scenario. Yeah. Something else that ends in grr. Uh, so they take Marcellus into into another room. They tie the gimp up like they like they lock him up like he's a dog. And it's it's kind of hot. I'm not going to lie. I kind of got a boner. Just yeah. About it. Um, I found certain things in me awakening uh, <laughs> during as this scene unfolded. The gimp them them going back to that to that chest they had the gimp in. I was like, oh, my. What is that about? <laughs> Except I'm kidding. And you're getting weird. <laughs> Ladies. What I mean, I'm into a little bit of light bondage, not heavy, just you know. I'm gonna put you in a gimp suit. I'm not necessarily gonna object. Uh, will you object to this? Bitch can hear shit from the other room, <laughs> 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 but she's still tied up to the chair, and he can hear shit happening in the other room. But he's like staring at the gimp, and the gimp staring at him, and he somehow manages to like break the chair to get out of there, and then he punches. It's because the chair is old and rickety, and yeah. Butch is in the prime of his life he breaks free he punches the gimp in the face knocking him out and so he's just hanging there so who knows what happened to him i mean this is a man who literally beat a man to death with his fists the previous night so it it, that makes sense yeah Uh, bare knuckled uh yeah Yeah, i i I believe it so he's about to take off but he can't leave he can't leave he he needs to go save that guy and that's just you know because he's just a good guy he's not but this is his redemption arc. You don't, you understand like, like, like that's how, that's how a story works is, is you have an arc for a character. This is Butch's arc. This is Butch trying to be a better person than the scumbag he started out as. So he ends up picking this katana, taking this katana down from the wall. And I guess, yeah, cause Quentin Tarantino's really into Asian culture and stuff, which is why he had Dragon Dynasty going for a while to give us some Hong Kong action movies. Keeping in mind, this is only Tarantino's second film, so he's already like trying to fit in the stuff he loves into this movie. You know, it's like he's like movie number two. He's like, all right, how can we, how can we make this fun and and share a little bit of my obsession with with my audience with feet, and so he, gimps, and Asian culture? Exactly, exactly. All the things Tarantino loves. So he. He goes back down into the basement. He opens the door and finds Zed fucking Marcellus in the butt. And Maynard's just like watching. He's not even jerking off. He's just kind of standing there staring at him going like, yeah, yeah, do it. And then Marcellus kind of turns his head, sees Butch back there. And then Maynard turns around. Oh, shit. And then he, you know, he does the old school like ninja movie slash across Maynard's chest. Oh, yeah. And and Maynard does the old school ninja movie reaction. It's pretty perfect. Yeah, where he turns around and faces the camera and it's just like this this line of blood down his shirt. And he's just kind of reeling like, ah, <laughs> you know, it's fantastic. And then Butch does the does the cool like behind stab thing. <laughs> where he steps forward and then without even looking, stabs Maynard in the gut behind him. And he's got Zed locked 
eye to eye the whole time as he stabs Maynard. Him and Zed are just eyes locked. It's a good challenge. Moment. Who puts the lotion on the skin now? Like, All right, what you gonna do, oh, fucker? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I stepped on that. Do that again. <laughs> Who puts the lotion on his skin now, Zed? <laughs> that is the same guy, right? <laughs> no, it's not the same guy. But they do look alike. I get the inclination there, but Fuck. no, it's a completely different guy. I do that all the time, but at least they look the same this time. Yeah, they. I actually, uh, the first time I watched it, I thought it was the same guy too. Then bitch goes ahead and tells Zed to grab the gun. Yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah, go ahead and grab it. You want that gun, don't you? Yeah, there you go. But it's pretty short lived because Marcella stands up right behind, right behind Butch. He has the shotgun now, and he's like, "Look out, motherfucker!" And then he shoots him in the stomach. Shoots fucking Zed in the stomach, not Bruce Willis. No, he doesn't shoot him in the stomach. Oh, shoot him! Shoot he him the shoots balls. him in right. the dick. <laughs> Everybody else gets shot in the stomach in these movies. I just <laughs> conflated. Not all Zed. Hits. Not Zed. Yeah, so he's. Basically, him not not even implying it. He's saying flat out that he's going to torture Zed until he dies. Yes, uh, in no uncertain terms, and he delivers one of the greatest lines of the '90s. Let me tell you what, Nat. I'm gonna call a couple of hard pipe hitting niggas to go to work on the homes here with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I ain't through with you by damn sight. I'm going to get medieval on your ass. I have a little thing about this that I discovered. I don't remember if I shared this with you or not. When that line, the I'm going to get medieval on your ass line, was translated into Polish, the translator did not know how to adapt it. So they translated it as, I'm going to turn your ass into the (laughs) autumn of the Middle Ages. And... Now that I know this, I have to use that in bed at some point. That's a good one. I like that. I can't. I think I learned that on Reddit or something like that. So the internet's good for something. Basically, Marcellus and Butch agree that Butch is off the hook, but he has to get the fuck out of town. Yeah, yeah, that sums it up. So Butch then takes Grace, who is uh, Zed's bike, Zed's motorcycle, and he. It's not a motorcycle. It's a chopper. I forgot about that line too. God damn it! <laughs> so he goes back to the back to the hotel. He picks up Fabian and she's like, where'd you get this motorcycle? And then he says, yeah, it's not a motorcycle. It's a chopper. Where's my Honda Fun- or whatever the fuck is a hot is. Was it a Honda? Yeah. She says, he's like, I'm sorry, baby. I had to crash that Honda. <laughs> but a funny, a funny note about the chopper line. The first time I watched this movie on the big screen, I watched it in Romania because they released it like three, literally. No shit. It was more like five years after the fact they finally got it in the theater over there uh it was in like 2000 and i was living over there at the time and pulp fiction finally came to romania i was like this is my favorite fucking movie let's go watch it and they translated the line chopper to helicopter (laughs) so the line is whose motorcycle is this completely different word and he says it's not a motorcycle it's a helicopter and I started laughing my ass off and everybody in the theater was giving me these weird looks like, what the fuck is wrong with you, dude? She's like, where'd you get the, where'd you get the thing? And he's like, well, it's Zed's. Who's Zed? Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. And then there you go. So many iconic lines in this movie. Fuck. 
Yep. And then and then that segment's over. And then which brings us into the last one, the Bonnie situation. We basically go right back to where we were, except now we're seeing it from the man in the bathroom's position where Jules is basically speaking Ezekiel twenty five seventeen to uh to Brett and Brett is about to die. Uh yeah, and then right when they you know they 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 shoot Brett just as they do that this fucking guy comes out from from the bathroom and just starts shooting him and shooting at Vincent and uh and Jules and not a single bullet hits him and I really love their reaction here they both kind of like look down like did we fucking did they hit did anything happen I really love it's just a funny thing and then they <laughs> then they raise their guns just kill that guy no hesitation immediately like we're okay. All right. You're dead. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> and they unload on him. And then they go to, he goes to Samurai Jack and he goes, why the fuck didn't you tell us there was somebody back there with a goddamn hand cannon? He's like, dude, I don't know. It's a stressful situation we're in right now. I don't remember if they did it in the opening bit, but in this sequence, Marvin takes Brett's, Brett's death really hard. Like he starts screaming when they're shooting him and he just like collapses into the corner and loses his fucking mind for a second so then jules looks back at the at the bullet holes he's like well how the fuck did that happen i think we just witnessed some divine intervention he's like you think god came down and stopped the fucking bullets he's like yeah maybe and vincent, and vincent is unconvinced not having it but jules <laughs> is not having his not having it jules is like motherfucker <laughs> we're not going anywhere vincent's like we got to get out of here no i want you to acknowledge this miracle so finally he's like all right fine it was a miracle can we leave now please <laughs> And they take they take Samurai Jack with him, yep. and his name is Marvin. I don't know why I keep on calling him Jack. So well, it's it's arguably his most iconic character, at least for me. Yeah, he they, you know so all three of them are in the car now. Marvin's not like handcuffed or tied up or anything. He's just in the fucking car. Vincent has the gun in his hand, but there's still... no Marvin's their friend. Wait, what? Marvin is their friend. Oh, was he like the informant? Yes, he was their inside man. Okay, I did not put that together. This is the first time you got that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no marvin is jules's friend yes well that explains well if he's his friend why didn't he give a shit when he got shot well i mean he's a stone cold killer i don't know if you noticed but he wasn't exactly thrilled about the whole thing it was more like you got brains in my hair motherfucker well i don't think that i'm not saying they were bosom companions like <laughs> you know like they were best buddies doing everything together and <laughs> okay. running through the waves on the weekends but you know, like they're, you know, so, amicable business acquaintances anyway. Yeah. A a acquaintance is a better word for it then. Okay. I gotcha. Okay. Yeah, probably. <laughs> okay. So all three of them are in the car then. For some reason, Vincent still has his gun out because he's a fucking idiot. And they're trying to, they're trying to logic yeah. their way through this, through what happened. He's like, I, it was a freak occurrence. I didn't see any damn miracles. And he's like, no, it was a fucking miracle. <laughs> and then Vincent turns back to marvin he's like well what do, what do you think marvin marvin's like man don't even bring me into this shit and vincent's like well come on you gotta have an opinion and he flops the gun over the back of the seat <laughs> like a fucking idiot gun safety people the number one rule in gun safety is muzzle control always know where that gun is pointed if you don't you are not in control of that gun well, and sure enough he blows off marvin's head well yeah i'm also noticing a really lack of like trigger safety you know how in modern movies uh -huh. they have the they don't have their finger on the trigger anymore unless they're like ready to pull it everybody in this fucking yeah, movie that's has their, how you're supposed yeah, to do it everybody in this movie has their fingers all over those goddamn triggers no wonder shit goes it's wrong be, it's because even though they're professional killers they're not professionally trained gunmen that's what it is 
Like you have to have someone teach you that you don't put your <laughs> finger on the trigger until you're ready to fire. Someone has to teach you that because it's not instinctual until you fucked up enough times to realize, <laughs> oh, maybe I wouldn't have blown my buddy's head off if I had had not had my finger on the trigger while I wasn't ready to shoot. Well, this is a uh, this is definitely a, a big issue. <laughs> uh, and, and his line here is just yes. like, I just shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> Very casual. Yeah, because Vincent doesn't again, Vincent's a cold blooded killer. He's really Vincent is concerned with the fact that he's now driving in a car that, to quote Jules, is drenched in fucking blood. They end up getting to Quentin Tarantino's house. His name is Jimmy. And and he's uh, he's Jules's friend. Yeah. This is where I realized that Vince is a sensitive little man, baby, because apparently we didn't see this scene, but Jimmy was giving him shit because there's a dead person in his garage. And Vincent is taking everything he's saying personally, and it, we'll actually get to see it happen later with when the wolf shows up, and it's funny. I'm <laughs> just like, you're such a fucking dickhead. Yeah, Vince is a bit of a little bitch. Yeah, he's awfully sensitive like he, about people uh, he's inconveniencing having feelings about situations. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He, he's very much wrapped up in his own world to the exclusion of all else. Jimmy buys good coffee, and he's pissed off, but he's like, yeah, I know I buy good fucking coffee. So that, that, that's a conversation for, for another day. He's pissed that there's a dead kid in his garage, a dead kid of color, by the way. And he makes mention of that several times. Again, uh, this scene, <laughs> right I completely buy specifically, specifically because we later reveal that his wife, Bonnie, is black. Yeah, yeah, it, that, that's fair. I didn't really put that together like I saw the thing, but yeah, I guess that makes sense. Like, remember Bamboozled? I still haven't watched it. I have it, though. You've watched. Oh, okay. Well, there's a scene in Bamboozled where Michael Rappaport is talking to Michael Rappaport is a TV exec and Damon Wayans is trying to pitch TV shows to him. And Michael Rappaport's character, again, this is, you know, this is, this is written by Spike Lee. It's a, very clearly about experiences he's had. And Michael Rappaport says to him, I know black people better than you know black people. <laughs> and but he doesn't say black people. Oh, all right. And he know. says, and don't get all sensitive about me using that word. Okay. My wife's black. My kids are black. I'm more black than you are. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Like Fair that, enough. that was, <laughs> that was an attitude, you know? So yeah, I completely buy Jimmy being that much of a prick and that confident. What I don't buy is Quentin Tarantino's acting because Quentin Tarantino should not have cast himself. It's, it's the, only real major misstep this movie makes even though i don't like that edit with mia wallace you know i understand why tarantino did the cut i think it was probably ultimately the right decision and there was no real way to fix it without just doing the cut that way but casting himself no i'm sorry that was a mistake 100 percent of the way uh, it's just something he does, man. He does it in all of his movies. Every no, every once in a while he doesn't do it. Like he didn't do it in Inglorious Bastards. He's not in Inglorious oh, Bastards. That, that is true. And you know what? It was the right decision. He shouldn't have been in it, nor should he have been in almost any of his other movies. <laughs> the only time I find it acceptable was in Death Proof, where he played the kind of scuzzy bartender. And I'm like, you know what? That was actually a perfect role for Tarantino. He pulled it off okay. And it was a movie where it was the type of movie where cheesy acting was acceptable. You know, it's like a trashy drive-in horror movie. But this is like, this is a movie with some of the best actors of the time 
giving some of their best performances of the time. And then you're going to cast yourself an actor who is mediocre at best. (laughs) I don't know. I kind of like it. It's not the worst thing he could have done. I mean, it could have been worse. He's okay, but he's okay across from Samuel L. Jackson's maybe best performance. I really wish he had cast him. He had not cast himself, but whatever it's done. I still love the movie. I, I don't like, it's not like I grit my teeth in hate every time this scene unfolds. I just kind of always look back on it and go, eh, I really wish you'd cast a better actor. Quinn. It's only been 28 years. You've had 28 years to get over it. Almost 29 years. In God damn. We're coming up on 29. Wow. Yep. So Jules then calls Marcellus to get some help. And who does he send but Harvey Keitel? And they call him the wolf. And I really, he's, he's writing down all the information about what's going on. And the last thing he writes, one body, no head. It makes me happy. <laughs> Harvey Keitel is fantastic in this. I mean, Harvey Keitel is pretty much always fantastic. I can't think of a single movie I've ever seen him in where I didn't think he was perfect casting, but he's particularly good in this because it's a particularly well-written part. He shows up, Jimmy answers the door, and he's like, "Hey, you got a corpse, corpse in a car minus a head in the garage, right?" I'm like, that's so funny. I don't know why this the way the way Harvey Keitel delivers every <laughs> line he has in this fucking movie. He's so snappy, like, you know, that thing where he says, I think fast, I talk fast. And if you want to get through this, I suggest you act fast. It's perfect. Like, it's a perfect summary of this character because this, I mean, he's got the whole thing about how he drives real fast. He says he's going to be there. He says it takes 30 minutes to get there. I'll be there in 10. And then we cut to nine minutes, 57 seconds later. (laughs) Yep. And he pulls up. Yep. Even Bonnie, Bonnie just happened to come out on during that scene. And she's like, what? How did he get there so fast? Because she heard it too. Um, so he is basically telling these guys what's what. He's like, you guys are going to do this and this and this. And then and then just before, like, like Jules is about to go and do what he, what he was told. And Vincent goes, please would be nice. Come again? I said a please would be nice. Get it straight, Buster. I'm not here to say please. I'm here to tell you what to do. And if self-preservation is an instinct you possess, you better fucking do it and do it quick. I'm here to help. If my help's not appreciated, lots of luck, gentlemen. No, 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 Mr. Wolf. It ain't like that. Your help is definitely appreciated. Mr. Wolf, listen. I don't mean disrespect, okay? I respect you. I just don't like people barking orders at me. That's all. If I'm curt with you, it's because time is a factor. I think fast, I talk fast, and I need you guys to act fast if you want to get out of this. So, pretty please, with sugar on top, clean the fucking car. I'm like, motherfucker, he is here because of you. literally because of vincent specifically yeah yeah vincent's got some balls on him yeah uh he needs to shut the fuck up especially talking (laughs) especially this guy who is clearly like the baddest of badass at what he does like you're gonna fuck with this guy come on i fucking love that i love this sequence so much like for a time not now obviously but for a time i could literally quote everything from Ezekiel 25, 17 until the end of the movie, like verbatim, no hesitation. I had this scene memorized. It, it, it's one of my favorite, like not scene rather, but this whole story memorized is one of my favorite stories of any movie ever. It, it is my favorite movie and it is my favorite part of my favorite movie is this sequence. Now, granted, my very favorite part of this story is the diner sequence, but you know, we'll get there. But yeah, like when Winston 
when he, he turns around, he, he just delivers that thing. Like basically it, it culminates with I'm here to help. If the help's not wanted, lots of luck, gentlemen. So Vincent does, he, 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 he does what he, what he's told, but he's still going and he thinks he should be <laughs> basically the, so him and Jules are in the car, fucking cleaning it up, just like the wolf told him to. And <laughs> Vincent is going on and on. And he's like, I've admitted my fault. So therefore I should be forgiven. <laughs> like, okay. have you heard the philosophy that once a man admits that he is wrong, he is instantly forgiven for all wrongdoing. Whoever said that never had to pick up any bitty pits, a skull out of a back seat. <laughs> Which, why the fuck is he back there when Vincent is the one who fucking killed the guy? <laughs> Shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 a whole, it's a whole conversation. <laughs> Every bit of dialogue during this sequence is solid gold. Like, this, there's no way to do it justice. It's another, like, married couple moment, too. Yes, it 100% is. Like, these guys are having a married couple fight. They just happen to be having it about <laughs> bits of human skull and brain rather than, you know, like, who spilled the coffee or something like that yeah. and then, or, or clean or cleaning up the kids shit in the car seat you know they're done cleaning and then everybody's like it looks good right and then the wolf is like let's not start sucking each other's dicks just yet <laughs> uh so jules and vincent then oh. have to go out <laughs> have to go out into the backyard they have to strip and get hosed down by this hose that is probably extra fucking cold oh yeah that mm. No, I felt my nuts shriveling up as I watched. <laughs> and he's like, you both have been to county, I'm sure. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they get hosed down. Jimmy hands him towels and they get on, get in his clothes. And then they, they put on these dopey looking clothes. And the wolf is like, well, what do they look like, Jimmy? And he's like, dorks. They look like a couple of fucking dorks. And then uh, Jules is like, they're your fucking clothes, man. <laughs> <laughs> I have a good question about this scene, though. Hang on. Hang on. Here's okay. a big, big okay, question. Shoot. Big question. So they put their clothes in 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 a in a garbage bag. The wolf is going to drive right. their car to uh, what is it called? Monster Joe's, and Vincent is going to drive the wolf's car. Okay, so the wolf goes right. to put the garbage bag full of clothes in the trunk. Why is Marvin's head still there? And it's intact. There's no holes. There's nothing. Oh, I I think it's just the back of his head that exploded. Like he got a bullet. There was there no hole? I thought there was a hole in the I front, and then like the whole was. back, I, it just I rewound it and I checked, and I, I I was thinking that, and I was looking for it, but maybe I just missed it. Oh well, it might be one of those things where like they do the cut so fast that like my brain just filled in that stuff, you know? Maybe yeah, I, I don't know. So that that's just just a question. It's probably it probably is what you said, and there's probably a hole somewhere, or you know they just didn't have time to do a body cast and just told philomar hey look look dead <laughs> so they do go to monster joe's though the wolf says though that if he gets his car back in 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 the any condition other than how how vincent is taking it they're gonna monster joe's gonna be disposing of two bodies yeah i get the feeling uh winston has just about had enough of vincent's shit at this point <laughs> so, it's weird to say winston because i have a nephew named winston and he's like he's like eight years old oh nice a little weird so then you know the wolf is like i'll give you a ride and they're like where do we where do you guys live and they tell him and he's like never mind you guys are taking a fucking cab but he did it does it in like a super snarky way i see a cab ride in your <laughs> it's a, future it's a good one and then he's also fucking monster joe's daughter yep played by Ju uh, spokane local julius weenie so jules and fucking vincent uh go and have breakfast so now we're we're gonna go to the diner because uh jules and vincent are gonna have some fucking breakfast after the long ass day they had 
as you do, you know, long day of a uh, long morning of killing and disposing of bodies. Uh, we all have to grab some breakfast after that. Jules doesn't like pork. Vincent is very nice. He's like, he's like, hey, man, you want some bacon? It's like they've been friends for a while and they could just share food and shit. And he's like, no, nah, man, I don't eat filthy animals and shit, but that's whatever. I don't really understand the that's just more random Tarantino banter. <laughs> I just don't dig on swine. And then they keep talking about the miracle and Vincent's like, I didn't witness a miracle. I witnessed a freak occurrence. And then all this shit, this, this happened and this happened and whatever. And then Vince or Jules has decided that he's really going to quit the life. He's going to give the briefcase to fucking Marcellus and then he's going to be done. And he's going to walk the earth like Cain from Kung Fu. Yes. And I have to say, Tarantino's got one more movie in him, according to him. He says he's only going to do one more. If he doesn't do a Kill Bill sequel, I wouldn't mind seeing him do a follow-up with Jules Winfield. Is he all old and and stuff? So he's like, he's like Jules now in like 2022 or whatever, you know, whenever he yeah, makes it. Yeah, it's 30 years later. He's been walking the earth, you know. You know, maybe maybe he's got a reason to bring him back. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't. But if he announced that he was doing a Jules Winfield sequel, I'd be like, sweet. I mean, I get excited. It makes sense. So they're in the diner from the beginning of the movie. That's that's very well. We don't realize that right off the bat. Well, until we we realize it now, though, because we cut to the fucking (laughs) the couple from the beginning. Garcon coffee, all that shit. Garcon means boy, whatever. Eh. Vincent, though, needs to go take a shit because, you know, heroin and stuff. Halfway through his plate of pancakes, he has not finished his full (laughs) plate of pancakes and he already has to take a shit. You know, that is what tells me that I will never get back down to my 20 something weight because I don't know how to stop at only halfway finished with the plate of pancakes. I have to finish the whole plate of pancakes. Then finish the whole plate of pancakes. Don't be a bitch. And I do. So... Uh, Honey Bunny and uh, Ringo, they start to rob the place and, you know, they're taking everybody's wallets. After Vincent has after gone to the bathroom. After Vincent has gone to the to bathroom. Jules is ready with his gun right under the fucking table. He has his wallet up, though. He's he's complying, kind of. He's doing his thing. He wouldn't have had to do I anything if the guy didn't ask about the stupid briefcase. Exactly. I think Jules knew as soon as the thing happened that he wasn't going to be able to get away from this with just giving him his wallet. And Jules is a professional, and he understands that he has a job he has to deliver on. And even though he's getting out of the life, he's got to get out clean. Ringo walks right over to him. He's like, hey, man, what's in the briefcase? He's like, I can't show you what's in the briefcase. You can't have this. It's not mine. I got to fucking deliver it to somebody. You can have my wallet, whatever. Eventually, though, the Jules, <laughs> he, he, Jules is convinced to open the briefcase, and it's like, like a second, and I'm like, okay. By okay. the fact that he realizes, like, the only option he's giving pumpkin is to kill him at this point pumpkin like that's his name. and and honestly they cut out the fantasy sequence that happens at this point because again it was one of those things that everybody was doing at the time but in it there was a fantasy sequence where he kills pumpkin because pumpkin was never going to get the better of him he was going to kill pumpkin but like you said pumpkin's never pulled the trigger ever but he's put him in a position where he has to which means Jules has to pull the trigger because Jules isn't going to just let this dude kill him. Jules is a a died in the wool killer. He has the ability. He's never going to let this dude. He's never just going to take a bullet to the face from this guy, but he's putting him in a position where he has to do that. So he's going to have to kill him. 
And that's why, again, you know, like this is this is all taken from the script, not from the actual movie. But I think it adds a nice layer of depth to your enjoyment of the movie if you understand that that's where Jules is coming from mentally. Uh, it does for me anyway. I, I I can't speak for you, I guess, but for me, it adds a nice layer of depth to where when Jules takes away Pumpkin's gun, he's doing it to save Pumpkin's life. Well, he, yeah, he, he literally even... means what he says. Yeah. Well, because he's like, yeah, I'm the tyranny of evil men. So that means, yeah, if if I wanted to, I could just blow your face off right now. Yeah, absolutely. Pumpkin is no threat to Jules in this situation. <laughs> he's given him a little therapy, given him some motivational speeches, you know, because when Pumpkin, Ringo, Pumpkin slash Ringo, he walks up, he, you know, Jules opens the case for him. And he's like, you know, like, is that what I think it is? He's like, yeah. Okay, cool. What is it? It's a glow in the dark dildo. I'm telling you. Because. <laughs> For you, it's a glow-in-the-dark dildo. Because that wasn't actually Marcellus's first time at Zed's place. Oh, shit. <laughs> so he's, he's killing Zed not only because of what he did to him, but also because Zed has Marcellus's dirty little secret. Yep. And he can't have anybody finding out. Yeah. That's what it is. Story checks out, man. So then Jules ends up fucking grabbing Pumpkin and fucking pointing the gun at his face. There's a lot of, oh yeah, he calm starts down, screaming, tell down. that bitch to be cool. <laughs> tell that bitch to be cool. <laughs> tell what? that bitch to be cool because Honey Bunny is losing her fucking mind over there. Like she's, <laughs> she's over on the other side of this barrier and she jumps up on it and she's screaming, let him go, let him go, I'll fucking kill you, let him go. And he's like, tell that bitch to be cool. <laughs> Say bitch be cool. And they chill out long enough for Jules to drop some wisdom on him. And Jules has him go into the bag, has him take out his wallet, gives him the money that was in his wallet, and he says, I'm I'm and Vincent's like, You give him that money, I'll kill him on general principle. He's like, I I'm not giving it to him. I'm buying something for my money. He says, I'm buying your life. I'm giving you that money so I don't have to kill you. Because I mean, because that's really who Jules is, you know. Like that, that's, that's the position that pumpkin and honey bunny have put him in is that they're not going to walk away with just the money. They're going to insist on taking the briefcase and Jules has to kill them. But he's, but he's saying, look, I'm giving you the money so you can just walk away from this, you know, and I don't have to kill you so that you can be satisfied and walk away. And it's not going to come down to me blowing your fucking head off because that (laughs) is what will happen. Yeah. And then, and then he, and then Honey Bunny will kill him, maybe. Yeah. I, well, she'll try. She might succeed. She might not. It's a crapshoot. You know, like she's definitely got the she's definitely got the frenzy to pull the trigger. But does she have the skill to kill him with it? Mm, could go either way. But Pumpkin is no threat to him. Ringo. Yeah, the dude's no danger. And then he, you know, right before he lets him go, he reads, he, he, he recites the Bible verse again, and then he kind of goes through his own little theories about what it means. And maybe I'll just throw a snippet in there because it's actually, it's really good getting all philosophical about it. Ezekiel twenty-five seventeen. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. 
I've been saying that shit for years. And if you heard it, that meant your ass. I never gave much thought to what it meant. I just thought it was some cold-blooded shit to say to a motherfucker before I popped a cap in his ass. I saw some shit this morning made me think twice. See, now I'm thinking, maybe it means you're the evil man and I'm the righteous man. And Mr. Nine Millimeter here, he's the shepherd protecting my righteous ass in the valley of darkness. Or it could mean you're the righteous man and I'm the shepherd. And it's the world that's evil and selfish. Now, I'd like that. That shit ain't the truth. The truth is, you're the weak, and I am the tyranny of evil men. But I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. Well, this is where I'll kind of say what I, my thoughts on this, because I've, I've been saving them up for this, because the, okay. it is the culmination of the story. The Bible verse is, is not a real Bible verse. It's taken from a Bible verse that mentions one or two of the things that actually are mentioned, but then it's, it, it's completely extrapolated into something that isn't in the Bible at all. And the reason Tarantino did that is because he wanted it to sound biblical, but also apply to the story, you know? So he created this Bible verse. The reason I knew like as soon as he as as soon as I heard it for the first time that that's not a real Bible verse is because he refers to human God speaking in this verse refers to humanity as my brothers God old Old Testament God never does that that's some New Testament shit and Ezekiel's in the Old Testament so right there I I knew it was a fictional Bible verse <laughs> my little evangelical Bible studyings teenage self was like yeah that one's bullshit but it suits the story really well because because like he says you know he he kind of illustrates what the what the verse goes through about the righteous man and the shepherd and the tyranny of evil men and it's such a great fucking sequence like i get chills every time i see it even just saying it there now like i i i i get chills from what a great line it is because it really is his transformation after this miraculous experience. And the reason I relate to it so well is because I've had a miraculous experience and it really is like, he actually really does get it right in that the conversation they have a little earlier where Jules says, it doesn't matter if it was an according to Hoyle miracle or not. The point is I felt the touch of God. I felt God get involved and I've been there. I've had that experience. I can't convince anybody of it. And a person, I, I, I truly believe that a person who's experienced that understands that you don't need to. Jules doesn't need to convince Vincent because he knows what he experienced. And it's okay if Vincent doesn't believe him, but he's also not going to pretend like it was something that it wasn't or wasn't what it was. And consequently, I, I, I connected really well with this scene from the very first time I saw it even till now, because I've had an experience like that. And it is an undeniable thing. And it makes you want to be a better person. It makes you want to transform and, and overcome the weakness of the person you are. And that's where Jules is at. And that's why it's such a redemptive story, because he wants to be a better person. He is, a, he is the tyranny of evil men, but he wants to be the shepherd. And I just watched, uh, I, I just recently finished Daredevil season one, and Wilson Fist 
Fisk, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, actually has a very similar monologue in the final episode of that. I don't know if you did you did you watch Daredevil season one? Been a long time, but yeah. Like he has this moment where he realizes he's the bad guy, and it's like the inverse of that monologue. He he even has he even has like a quote. I think it's like Shakespeare or something. It's not the Bible, but he has a quote, and he it, he basically says, you know, I realize now that I am effectively the tyranny of evil men. Everybody, and then they walk out, <laughs> yep. and we get that another great surf rock song that is completely lost on you. I've never seen the ocean. You don't have to have seen the ocean. That's not true. I've totally, surf I've totally seen the ocean. That's it. We're done. It's it's Pulp Fiction credits. Shitty surf rock. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's great surf rock. Fuck you. That's it's my favorite movie. That's it. We're done. Fuck this movie. Not really. I was actually um, <laughs> expecting. I was actually expecting to not enjoy it as much as I did because I'm not the edge lordy teenager that I was back in the day when I first watched it. But it was, it, it it still holds. Neither up pretty am well. I. But I feel that it ages well. It does. It's pretty funny. You know, I I laughed throughout the whole thing, and it's just it's it, it, it yeah. It's it it's a well. very like funny it. movie. Tarantino said at the time. I I'm not 100 percent sure he said this about Pulp Fiction, but he said it about one of his movies that he had released in the late 90s. So it was either Pulp Fiction or Jackie Brown. Well, Pulp Fiction um, came out in 1994, so that is not the late 90s at all. Okay, the 90s. Well, excuse <laughs> me, the 90s. Um, so it was either Pulp Fiction or Jackie Brown, possibly Kill Bill Volume 1, but I, I, I'm pretty sure it was before that that I read it. But he said, I'm less concerned with how well a movie does on its opening weekend and more concerned with how it's viewed 20 years from now. And being almost 30 years down the road from it, I feel that this movie has aged extraordinarily well. It is a time capsule, so it does need to be viewed that way. It's not like it feels like it's taking place today. It very clearly doesn't. But yeah, I, I, I think it's held up remarkably well and continues to be... Uh, and, and, and it really is one of the definitive movies of the 90s, arguably the definitive movie of the 90s. I'd say that's Three Ninjas, but, you know, that's just me. Well, yeah, there are two schools of thought on that, I guess. So I'm not going to try and say it's Tarantino's best movie. I think there's a valid argument for several other movies being better movies, but it is my favorite movie. Uh, again, just because I connected with it so well, and it really, it, it really is his only redemptive story, where not just one aspect of the story is redemptive, but all aspects of the story are redemptive. Except for Vincent. Vincent dies. But the reason Vincent dies is because he didn't go with Jules. If he had followed Jules's lead and walked away, he'd still be alive today. And we could get that Vega Brothers sequel, maybe. Are we done with Pulp Fiction? I think we're done with Pulp okay. Fiction. Oh, did Good. you give your final thoughts? I can't recall. Uh, I think I did. Good movie. Thought I thought I wouldn't like it as much, but it holds up. It's both timely and timeless at the same time. It's one of those. Okay. So go watch that shit. It's no Three Ninjas, but yeah. you'll still enjoy it's it. No Three Ninjas. It's fucking. It'll be fine though. It's it's all right. It's an okay movie. It's an okay movie. You know, solid five out of ten on this one. <laughs> okay, how about a little social media? Uh, social media. Follow us on everything at the Shark Pod, even Twitter. Despite what's going on, I haven't fucking quit our Twitter yet. So that's a little. It's a thing. I'll maybe I'll buy a blue check mark. <laughs> there you go. Fucking Twitter. We'll get verified as. Uh... The official Jaws. You can also donate money to our Patreon. It's not really donating. You're technically buying shit from us right now. Exclusive episodes, 
2021 the 13th 2022 a year in the asylum where we talk about all the asylum mockbusters and the next year we're gonna break into the fucking shaw scope box set from arrow video and that's gonna be awesome diving into some of that weird shaw brothers fucking nonsense which is basically just like the chinese roger corman type stuff (laughs) kind of very excited about that one I'm, I'm i'm looking forward to that so patreon.com slash across hollywood come do that give us a dollar I'll, we'll do anything for a dollar almost anything all we'll post anything. episodes every month for a yeah, dollar we we'll definitely do that every month for a dollar but hey we'll be back in a couple weeks with oh it's christmas christmas shit assuming that this episode goes well fucking <laughs> 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 fuck uh we'll be We'll be back next week. Should we do Trapped in Paradise or Santa with Muscles first? Once you do Santa with Muscles, everything else is going to be downhill from there. So yeah, maybe we should start with Trapped in Paradise. <laughs> okay, that sounds fair. Trapped in Paradise in a couple weeks in December when, when, when things are magical and we all believe in magic, right? Will Fuck this be our first movies. Nicolas Cage movie? Um, yeah, I think. Unless yeah, I'm just forgetting I, one. Nothing else is coming to mind at yeah, the moment. No. Fuck it. Come huh. back Come back in a couple weeks for that shit. Trapped in Paradise. Come listen to us in a couple weeks talk about Trapped in Paradise. But until then, stay jawsome. <laughs>